Hello, boys and girls. Welcome to MA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny G. We're talking about UFC 288, the full card breakdown. We'll start the premium card first, work our way all the way up to the main card, one fight at a time. Details, stats, our picks, some betting spots. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to like and subscribe. On the note, guys, let's jump into it. Here we go. First fight in the prelim card is going to be a bantamweight bout. 135 pounders, Daniel Santos, who goes by Willie Cat, versus Johnny Munoz Jr., who goes by Kid Cavenbo. All right, so we've got ourselves a Brazilian in Santos, an American in Munoz. We're going with Munoz to win this fight by submission. Now, he is the dog here, currently sitting at plus 155. You got Santos at minus 180. He's not a huge dog, quite frankly, a little surprised that he's even a dog at all. I would imagine this price tag would have been around to pick him. And though we do like Santos, he's got finishing ability. He's exciting. I think Munoz here is being a little overlooked. And his submission ability is just about world-class. Now, granted, it's mixed martial arts. But we think at some point here, late rounds, round two, round three, he finds a submission here over Santos. As for their details, Santos is 10-2 and two overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Again, out of Brazil, specifically Sao Paulo, Brazil. 28 years young, 5'7 in height with a 67-inch reach. And he's out of Shudo Boxe. Shudo Box Diego Lima, which is a very good gym down in uh, Brazil. As for Mr. Munoz, who goes by Kid Convenbo, 12-2 overall, about the same amount of experience. 3-2 in his last five fights as well. Out of Norco, California, 30 years old. 5'9 in height, so about 2 inches taller than Daniel Santos. With a 71-inch reach, about 4 inches. An advantage there for Munoz for reach. He's out of Quince, or Quince Jiu-Jitsu, Norco. My apologies for the mispronunciation. Okay, let's jump into our write-up here. And at the end, I'll go over a few of my notes just to make sure I'm not missing anything here. So again, we like Munoz win this fight by a round three submission. He's a world-class jiu-jitsu practitioner. Out of his 12 career wins, seven have been by submission. He lands 3.69 strikes per minute, which is reflective of his grappling-heavy approach. 2.32 takedowns per fight. So here's a guy who's spending time on the ground. If he's got back control, he's not landing many strikes. And so that's why his striking numbers look the way they do. At the very least, though, in his defense, he does have a positive striking ratio. Now, the keys to victory for Munoz are pretty simple. Avoid getting chin-checked, right, which seems like it's obvious, but he's been cracked before recently. And then also go ahead and make sure he's getting some type of grappling going on against the fence, backpacking, because it doesn't have to be on the ground. He will be on someone's back for two minutes at a time, and that in itself considers you know grappling, grappling control, so things of that nature. Ideally, for Munoz, he wears down Santos over the course of round one, round two, and early on, you're defending submissions. Some of it's mental. Like After a while, like this guy's still on my back. I kind of give up. That happened to Journey Newsom. He lost that fight against McGee, and at some point, you just saw, if you're watching on the broadcast, that at some point, Newsom was like, you know what? I'm in a bad position. I'm not getting out of here, and uh, I'm going to lose this fight. I'm going to tap right now. I'm getting out of here. So it's not to question his heart or whatever else. I mean, that was a broken fighter at that point, broken mentally, broken uh, broken physically. So that would be ideal here. Camuños breaks Santos mentally, wear him out, get him down. And so it should be noted, though, that Munoz does lack quality wins in the UFC. He's fought some good fighters, but hasn't really had a notched uh, quality win. And he also got knocked out last year by Tony Gravely. Gravely, who we like. Gravely, who's a former college wrestler. Gravely, who's not known for his knockout power. So that was a little bit of a, uh, not, I wouldn't say red flag, but it was, uh, we have to look at that moment and think to ourselves, is Munoz the kind of guy who's got some chin fragilia issues? I don't know. It's too early to tell, right? Now for Santos, 
He seems to be allergic to the scorecards, right? No going to decision. It's a treat for the fans, but very stressful if you're wagering on him. Against his last opponent, he was rocked multiple times. I mean, a few times I thought, okay, he's done. Like, he was wobbly on the feet, not getting knocked down per se, but like doing the stanky leg. And it happened two times, three times. Now, he makes a full comeback. It's impressive. He ends up wearing out his opponent and finishing this guy. The opponent was probably like, what else to do with, with him? I can't finish him. He's hurt. I'm wobbling him. So from one standpoint, you're like, wow, a lot of heart. He got dazed. He worked through it. Showed good survival skills. And one of the times he got dazed, he went to some grappling. Other times he was like, you know, fuck it. I'll just work through it. And uh, he did. He got the win. But that was an average fighter who was cracking him. That's not a UFC caliber fighter. And he got cracked several times. So I just wonder, maybe a higher caliber fighter, even just higher caliber, meaning just someone who's got UFC experience, possibly finishes him there instead of letting him off the hook, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. So Santos is a balanced grappler. I think his grappling skills are going to be very important here. Let's say the fight does hit the mat round one or round two or round or any point. We like Munoz's submission ability, his grappling offense, but this kid Santos has submission skills too, has BJJ skills. You know, he is Brazilian after all. And so I expect that if the fight hits the mat, it shouldn't be just one-way traffic with Munoz. I think this guy should be competitive, meaning Santos. Now, the last time he won a fight by decision was four years ago. That's for Santos. Again, not the kind of guy who's going to the scorecards, looking to finish his opponent. It comes out very aggressive. He's got a bit of that Drew Dober in him, where it's like, I don't mind to eat a few punches. You know, I'm in here to win the fight. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm not out here just to, you know, run around here and jab at distance. I want to get it on. So I do like that about him, but it's like he's going to fall on his sword at some times in some of his fights because of the way he, you know, he battles it out. As for the betting spots, we like here the most. We like the fight going under two and a half rounds at minus 145. Fight does not go the distance at minus 180. And Munoz by submission at plus 425, along with Santos into the distance at minus 110. So again, the betting spots we like for this fight are the fight not going to the cards, no distance, uh, I'm sorry, under two and a half. Munoz by submission, which is plus 425. Very surprised to see that. I would have thought that would have been around, I'll be honest, like plus 250 range. You know, when I saw plus 425, I'm thinking, man, they're not giving this guy any respect for his submission ability. If he were to wobble Santos, he's not going to, you know, just play with that. He's going to jump on this dude's back. He's going to go for something. He's going to go for what he's best at, which is submissions. So I, I do see that as a very high likelihood that that could happen if Munoz were to win. And then if Santos into the distance, which is minus 110, uh, the book's just telling you outright. This we see as a, as a rightful path to victory for Santos. And we've seen lines like this recently. For example, last weekend you had Kyle Barallo at plus 120 by submission. I couldn't understand why. I was kept telling myself, hasn't had a submission in years, not a finishing kind of fighter. But the books give you the clue, and not, not a clue that the fight's being fixed. That's not what we're saying. They give you a clue that these are mathematically the highest probability of, of chances to possibly execute a prop bet winner. And if you're looking for just numbers, you're basing it on the, the Vegas numbers. They're going to give you a spot at minus 120, minus 140, minus 110 here. They're telling you outright, look, this is a high probability spot. And if it wasn't, it would be like plus 1,600, right, or plus 2,200. In any case... Um, we respect it. We're not going to play that spot because I feel like you're you're risking you're you're playing 
Russian roulette there. You're putting, you know, 50 bucks, half unit, whatever. And then Santos goes out there and he gets starched because he fights like, you know, Juliana Rosa. Now, Munoz by round three submission is plus 2,200. We'll, of course, sprinkle that because that's our exact method of victory that we're predicting. But you're put, talking about putting like five bucks up there to win like $110. Just saying. All right, guys, that's the first fight in the car. Let's move on. All right, making our way up the card. Next fight's going to be Joseph Holmes, the American, versus Claudio Ribeiro. I feel like I just watched Ribeiro fight on Contender Series just the other day. Now he's out here with like his second UFC fight. Nonetheless, we like Joseph Holmes to win this fight by a round two submission. That's plus 1,600 for those who want to play that prop. So, yeah, Joseph Holmes by a round two submission. Middleweight bout, 185 pounders. Full disclosure, I kind of forgot the submission arsenal of Holmes. He's a very long guy. He's very tall, like 6'5 here, or 6'4 compared to 6'1 for Claudio. He's usually taller, long limbs, and then he does have some submission ability, but he's young. He's 27, just getting his feet wet, has made some mistakes recently, cardio. We acknowledge all that, but I feel like Claudio Ribeiro is coming in here a little, little juiced in the line, and if Joseph Holmes were to pull out a win, it just, it wouldn't be surprising. The Claudio Ribeiro we've seen recently, if you can forgive me just for, for giving a little riff here, he's looked good and it's been convenient situations. And I made a joke recently. I was like, you know, <clears throat> we were talking about this fight. So a few weeks ago now, it was the fight where you had, um, oh, the female fighter, I forgot her name. And she defeated the Brazilian prospect who came in like undefeated and had a bunch of first round finishes. And nonetheless, uh, the female UFC fighter, you know, had some experience in this, you know, 9-0 or 10-0 Brazilian comes in and looks amazing on film even. Now she's fighting very low level fighters. The combined record was awful. I bring the example up of like this. If I go outside right now and I fight like a little three-year-old kid, matter of fact, give me like five three-year-old kids. I'll fight them all in a row and I'll probably beat them up, right? I'm a grown ass man against three-year-old kids. People who have not and no records or undefeated against no one, this in itself is like, it's almost like they've been, that's an amateur career. <clears throat> you know, almost looking at like it's that way. So we've seen that before. In the case of Joseph Holmes, he starts off, he's got a nice record, he's looking very good, and then, you know, gets into the UFC, he's kind of hitting that reset button. For Claudio Ribeiro, the example's more applied to him. Like his fight and contender series, the, the guy who's fighting just made a really bad mistake. You know, uh, he made an awful mistake and Ribeiro capitalized. He jumped in the moment. And so out of contender series, he's blasting off like a rocket ship. He's got the size, got the look. Then first fight in the UFC gets knocked out in round number two by Abdul Razak Hassan. And I was like, oh, oh, because again, his fight against Valenzuela in contender series, round one, 25 seconds. It looks really good on paper. And it looked kind of good in the fight too. Though again, his opponent makes a really bad mistake. So then prior to that, it's like round one finishes. He's knocking everyone out in thunder fight promotion. I'm telling you, I, I, I think I have a good read in this guy, Claudio. He is a good prospect, but this is a level up here. Joseph Holmes has been doing the last few fights, has been learning about himself, has made some mistakes. Won some, lost some, right? So 
let me dive into it again. I like Joseph Holmes to win this fight by submission. I'll try to rationalize to that to you throughout this breakdown. Middleweight fight, 185 pounders. Holmes is 8-3 and three overall, 3-2 three in his last five fights. He's the underdog here out of Texas. 27, but about to be 28 in a month or so. 6-4 in height with an 80-inch reach. Massive reach. Probably one of the longest reaches in the entire middleweight division. He's out of War Training Center. For Claudio Ribeiro, 10-3 overall. 4-1 in his last five fights. He's the favorite here. Currently sitting at... Um, Give me a second. You've got Ribeiro at minus 175 home. Holmes at plus 150. I do recall that line was a little wider before. I want to say at some point it opened with Claudio Ribeiro, maybe around minus 210 or floated that price tag. It's come back down. Yeah, I think that makes sense. If I were to like just off the cuff say this line for me would be maybe minus, I'd have it minus 150-ish for home and then have Ribeiro here at plus money. So for me, the line is, you know, it's it's not huge off, but it's it's off a little bit, um, I guess I would say. All right, back to the details. So yeah, for Holmes, very tall, very long war training center. For Ribeiro, 10 and three overall, former in his last five fights. He's a favorite out of Sao Paulo, Brazil, 30 years old, six foot one in height, 77 inch reach, and out of Brazilian black tie. In terms of height and reach, it's not a huge difference. There are guys, Joseph Holmes has fought before where it was like, 10 inches in reach difference, uh, you know, five, six inches in height. He's done that because, again, he's very lean, very long guy. But for Ribeiro, actually sizes up well here. But there'll still be that four-inch reach advantage there for Holmes. If he uses that in range well, you know, you could see him landing a few nice things at distance. Uh, that would be a little harder for Ribeiro, actually, because he's just a little bit shorter, right? Makes perfect sense. Let's talk about the breakdown. So, home round two submission at plus 1,600. That's our spot we like. He's a tall middleweight. We mentioned before his height and his reach. As usual, he'll have a small advantage here in terms of, I'm sorry, small. He'll have a sizable advantage and reach over his opponent. After starting his career seven and one, he's now gone one and two in his last three fights. His last bout resulted in a round two submission loss to Jung Young Park. He started the fight strong and then going into round two, or in the round one, he started to fade. And actually in round one was, I believe, trying to defend himself from a submission. So his end of round one was having himself already starting to show some problems. Cardio was the result of him falling apart there. It's been a reoccurring issue for him. He fin his finishing skills are impressive. He looks good when he's on top of a guy, beating him up, submitting them. But once Holmes gets into round two, and it may possibly even round three, his skills are very compromised. Now, at only 27 years old, here's our hope. He's learning from this. You know, his, his rookie contract will be up soon. It's sort of like now or never do you want to make a living doing this do you want to go ahead and you know turn it up a notch get better hit the road work whatever it is i don't know that he has or hasn't i'm taking a leap of faith assuming that he's doing something to improve in those areas and if he does i believe the best version of him right now beats the best version of ribeiro right now though again ribeiro talk about potential is like a little bit behind Holmes in terms of that climbing the ranks right because it's like his second fight in the ufc we have Holmes who's already fought a handful of fights in the ufc all right, so as for Ribeiro, earned his UFC contract by a round one knockout just last year in Contender Series, like 25 seconds. We talked about that already. He's still in search of his first UFC win. He made his debut against Al Hassan. And Ribeiro in that fight did display amazing takedown defense because Al Hassan was trying to wrestle and he can wrestle. And you know, he's really powerful. And my man here, Ribeiro, had 100% takedown defense. I don't believe Holmes will be obsessed with getting takedowns. He does have submission ability. I like the club and sub approach, him hurting my man Ribeiro, then forcing a takedown scenario where then Holmes can find himself into a submission. But actually just taking down 
my man here, Ribeiro, outright? Would Holmes do that? I don't think he will because, again, early on in that fight, Ribeiro showed very good take defense against Al-Hassan. Here's the thing, though. His hands come down. He started to show significant signs of, of, of slowing down, getting tired in round number two. And when he did, uh, he left himself open for a counter, and he got sloppy. And, of course, Al-Hassan throws with the thunder, thunder ends up cracking him. Um, it happens. Al-Hassan's a pretty good fighter. It was a tough matchup. It was a tough debut there for Ribeiro. Nonetheless, he came up short. Now, Ribeiro has a 100% finish rate. All of his finishes are by knockout as well. So he's not a submission guy. That's not his thing. He's looking to knock you out. He's very athletic. His athleticism alone actually can keep him in just about every every fight he's in, unless he's fighting on Hassan, right? Unless he gets knocked out. I'm saying his he's athletic enough. He can overcome some of his his rawness, his shortcomings, lack of experience. He's not a flat-footed guy who can't move around. He does a good job circling the cage, at least while he has the gas tank in check. So he's you know a typical young guy, bunch of finishes regional scene. Now you're with the big boys. Need to. You know, dig down deeper. A lot of stories they'll tell you, you know, uh, veteran fighters of how when they first came in, they were wet behind the ears, made these kind of mistakes. So I expect him too, like Holmes, to be making some level of improvements, right? But hands are low. Needs to get him up. Can be very hittable. And if you look at topology, he doesn't go beyond round two very often, if ever. That is where I'm thinking... Even though Holmes has had some cardio issues too, I think we have a finish at some point in round two or three by one of these two guys. Someone, uh, I think, makes enough of a mistake. Someone here comes in fresh enough. Endurance might be the deciding factor in this fight. Who has the better endurance? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's tough to kind of tell. Uh, we're taking a stab here at Holmes. We feel like he's got, again, more veteran experience. Not veteran. He's the one who's more experienced in the UFC, right? He's got wins in the UFC. But again, it's going to come down to who's got the better gas tank. The betting spots we like the most of this fight are the fight not going to the cards, which is minus 350. They're not getting much return there. We will look to parlay that with something on our tip sheet. And of course, our tip sheet will be in two places. It'll be located in our newsletter. The link for the newsletter is down below. So subscribe to that newsletter. And also on our Google Drive, the link is down below as well for our Google Drive, which has our breakdown notes, data sheet, film library and our tip sheet for this UFC 280 full card. So again, uh, fight not going to decision at minus 350, Ribeiro by TKO at minus 140 and Holmes by submission at plus 500. Those are the spots we'll be looking at. Not sure what we'll be playing again for our actual plays. Check out our full tip sheet, which usually comes out Wednesday morning with our newsletter. Yeah. Wednesday morning comes out. That's nine o'clock AM Eastern time. Anyway, just to wrap this up here, we like Joseph Holmes to win this fight round number two by submission. He's a plus 150 dog on the money line, so maybe just play him on the, do- on the money line. However he wins, you get some plus money in return. So let's move on. Making our way up the car, we have a flyweight bout. 125 pounders, Rafael Estevam from Brazil versus Zalgas Zumagulov from Kazakhstan two international fighters. Now, Estevam, 11-0, very impressive, coming off a contender series. He is the replacement fighter here, not last minute, but he is the replacement fighter. For Zalgas, been around for a minute. His record, you know, one in four last five fights, 14-8 overall, not indicative of actually how good of a fighter he is, which we'll talk about that. In terms of our pick, we'll tell you right now that we like Rafael Estevam to win this fight by decision. 
That prop's currently sitting at plus 125. Again, the Brazilian Rafael Estevam to win this fight by decision. He's currently sitting at minus 190. This is as of uh, Monday evening, uh, the 2nd of May. And you've got Zuma Golov at plus 160 on the other side. For those, by the way, who are on Zuma Golov to win, uh, citing his experience and competition schedule or strength of schedule compared to Rafael, I'm with you. I understand it. Um, if you want to just shut me off right now and move forward in the video, uh, I understand. But I do think Rafael Estevam is up to the task, does just enough that I think he edges out a decision here over Zagas. And I don't think he finishes Zagas because Zagas is you know a tough dude. Has been finished before. But I think Rafael's uh, game plan will lend toward us going to the scorecards. All right, as for their details, again, flyweight bout, 125 pounders. Mr. Zumagulov is 14-8 overall, 1-4 in his last five fights. So on a rough stretch. He's out of Kazakhstan, 34 years old, 5'4 in height, about four inches shorter than here than uh, Rafael Estevan, who's at 5'8. And you got Zagas at 66.5 inch reach compared to 69 inch reach for Rafael Estevan. For the gyms, Zagas is out of Arlen MMA Pro Team and Irk and Kush. And for Estevan, he's out of Nova Uniao. Very good gym down in Brazil. You'll see a lot of good fighters coming out of there. For Esteban, 11 0 undefeated out of Rio de Janeiro, 26 years old, so about eight years younger. And at that age, like he's maturing, approaching maybe his prime per se. With Zagas at 34, I don't think he's too old by any means, but let's just say at a flyweight division, 125 pounders, his most athletic days, I believe, might be a little behind him. So Rafael will have a slight height and reach advantage, two and a half inches in reach. Don't think that's a big factor. Um, Rafael is not a big uh, striker. That's not where he, quote unquote, butters his bread, so to say. Um, but it could be a factor on the ground. You know, his submission ability is pretty good. Those longer arms, thinner arms do help. So here's our breakdown. So Hafa Estevan by decision is plus 125. That's how we see the fight going for Estevan. He's an undefeated prospect making his UFC debut after securing a contract last season on Contender Series. Up to now, he hasn't really been tested. He has a relentless ground game, impressive finishing statistics. And I want to emphasize this, relentless ground attack. He'll go for a takedown doesn't get it, guy's kind of, you know, trying to get back up, and he's recommitted to lowering levels, taking a leg, taking an ankle. At first, you might think, well, he's going to wear himself out. Uh, doesn't seem to happen. Um, I don't know what kind of diet he's on, but his energy level is through the roof, and so he's able to do this repetitive, you know, he reminds me of uh, that guy, Danny Sabatello from over in uh, Bellator, just like not super-duper amazing striker, I mean, just okay, but the damn grappling is, it's this pace and pressure. And, you know, if you're defending it for round one, it's okay. And then by round three, you're like, this guy is you know, just won't get off of me. And I'll draw an example for myself personally. When I first started grappling just to exercise with some local guys in a, you know, a mixed martial arts gym, a few old guys, man, took me to the mat and just like chest to chest pressure on me. And I had to like tap out a little bit. Like I wasn't used to this suffocating pressure. I'm not trying to get up and I can't get up off my back because these guys are using techniques that really kind of weigh you down. Uh, it's a real thing. And I think in the case of, you know, some of these guys, like, you know, with, with, with Hafa Estevam, he does a good job of weighing on your ass. You know what I mean? Like once he gets you down, doesn't let you up. He knows how to keep you down there. Now, Zagas is good everywhere, just not really good at any one thing. Anyway, back to this breakdown in detail here. So in the case of um, Estevam, at a contender series, up to now hasn't really been tested, has some impressive finishing statistics. Seven of his 11 wins were via finish. About a what? That's like a 60-something percent finish rate. Now, there's a lot to like about this kid, right? Averages a whopping 4.02 takedowns per fight, 
in conjunction or in addition to or in parallel with landing 6.47 strikes per minute. You usually don't see numbers like that. You'll find like a high level of takedowns, low strikes or vice versa. So he's busy. And if you watch the film, it makes sense. He doesn't just sit there and lay and pray. He'll get chest to chest with you for a little bit. He'll own that position. And then he's squaring up, posturing up. He's doing all kind of shit, throwing hammer fists. Doesn't necessarily look technical, but he's keeping active. And what it does is it wears out his opponents. They can't just lay there and catch their breath. He's always, like I said, like Sabatella. Like Dan if you don't know who Danny Sabatella is, let me see if I can draw a comparison for a UFC fighter. Um, someone who's a crazy pace and pressure. I, don't, I, I can't think offhand, but the point is, like the guy just—he's like a uh, energizer buddy, just does not stop. Right. So six point four seven strikes per minute. At the very least, he's going to test the defense of Zumagulov, the wrestling defense it is. And Zumagulov has 66% takedown defense. Not amazing, not terrible. I think that number goes down here after this fight. Now, our only concern for Estevam is this. Back to the first point. He hasn't fought many people, and that's where you're like, oh, you know, like he has a win on contender series, okay. But the strength of schedule is a problem. It leaves a big hole here. Like, we, like if he, who's the kid who just lost? Uh, the Rojas kid, right? Young kid, 18, 19, he's all high on his horse. I'm main carding. People should listen to me. I, I know how to get in the main card, man. I'm I'm, I'm a vato, man. I'm Mexican-American. I'm a winner. And then he goes out there and just wrestling doesn't work. In the case of Hafa Estevam, I think that his technique and what he does is actually more efficient and more effective. And he's shown that he could wrestle for rounds two and three. I'm not worried he does the, the, the Rojas thing, Junior. And, and gas is out here. I think he does have it. Now, could it be bright lights, debut, gets nervous, the heat of the hot lamps? I don't know. But I think in the case of like in a vacuum, his wrestling looks good. It's effective. But the point here was he hasn't faced anyone the level of Zumagulov. Zumagulov might have a 14 and 8 record, but my man has fought UFC competition again, again, and again. And this is the first time out here for Hafel. You know, with all that said, at minus 190, he drops the bag here. It wouldn't be surprised if a capper's out there telling you I'm on Zalgas because of X, Y, Z and the experience. They're a hundred percent right. Now I'm not on Zalgas to win this fight because he has better hands, higher output. No, he doesn't. We could, we'll talk about that in a second. Rafael Estevam edges him out in all the categories that matter, but that's from one fight though. The UFC statistics are just from their UFC fights in and contender series from the one fight in contender series, Rafael Estevam, 6.47 strikes per minute, 4.02 takedowns per you know three rounds. That's in a small sample size. So we could see him come in here against Zalgas and be like, oh shit, I can't take this Kazakhstani guy. Did I say Kazakhstan? Make sure I guys. Yeah, he's from Kazakhstan. I, I don't take him down as easy because this guy is just like built for that life. And he's also, you know, a little shorter, a little bit smaller. Anyway. Let's get back to this here. So when it comes to competition, that's a big issue for me when it comes to comparing the two. And I think for Estevam, we'll see. Is he ready for this this level of competition now? He's faced um, okay level of competition, I would say, so far, right? Um, just look at my notes right here. So who knows? Maybe Estevam finds himself on the right side of a split decision. That's in my notes. Now, why would I say that? I'll come back to that. But in my notes right here, it says maybe Estevam finds his way into a split decision. We'll wrap around to that thought here in a few moments. So for Zuma Gulov, he comes to this fight, octagon fight, UFC fight, seventh time. So he's a bit of a veteran now, second contract. He's faced a quality level of competition. He's fought guys like Manel Kopp, 
Abazi, Jeff Molina, and Charles Johnson. Now, I know Charles Johnson's on a bit of a rough streak, but Charles Johnson is better than anyone that Rafael Esteban has fought, for example. You see what I'm saying? So I'm just mentioning these are guys that I believe are better than anyone on schedule for, you know, uh, Rafael. <clears throat> yeah, no matter where the fight takes place, Zumogolov, excuse me, is game. We talked before about this. He's not amazing at any one thing. He's not going to, like, knock you out or overvolume you um, or take you down and submit you. But he'll wrestle with you. He'll survive the full distance. He'll tag you every now and then. He's even got some power. So he's game for wherever the fight goes. Now, with that said, he can't be on his back too long, right? If he wants to win this fight, he can't get taken down by Hoffel repeatedly and spend too much time on his back. And I don't think he will. So I think for him, it's like he's the jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Does a lot of things okay, does not one thing in particular very good, which is also why his ass ends up in a lot of decisions, which we'll talk about in a second. I believe, though, in most scenarios, with a guy like Rafael, he finds a way to decision. You see what I'm saying? He's, he's a crafty guy. He's a crafty veteran. He averages 1.36 takedowns per fight. Now, that would matter if he was facing a guy that was not like Rafael, but Rafael's like, listen, you want to wrestle? Let's go, dude. I want to wrestle too. If he takes down Rafael, Rafael's like a, a wizard on the ground. He's going to jump back, reverse position. Thank you for going to the mat with me. Um, I don't imagine that Zuma Gulov actually tries to go for takedowns. I think he's going to try to keep the fight standing more because this kid who's eight years younger, a bit of a whippersnapper, wants to get the fight to the ground, wants to try to exhaust the old man. And for Zuma Gulov, I think at least for the first two and a half, three minutes, let's keep this standing would be his preference. Feel this kid out. See if I can hurt him one or two shots because the ground game is exhausting. And I don't think Zuma Gulov wants to get on to that. Now, Rafael won't let it happen like that. He's going to get the fight to the ground either way. But I'm just talking from Zuma Gulov's perspective. I don't think his 1.36 takedowns are going to matter in this fight. Now, the striking numbers for Zuma Gulov, they're a little bit concerning. He lands 4.87 strikes per minute. And he's absorbing 5.37. Now, I'm not a doctor in the studies of math mathematics, but I believe that is a negative striking ratio. And so he's obviously getting hit more than he's dishing out. And 5.37 per minute, that's actually not too far off that 5, 6.47 per minute that this guy over here, Hafel, averages. So you can imagine somewhere around six strikes per minute is what Hafel will be looking to land in this fight. That's a lot. That wins in the scorecards. And for a person like... Zuma Gulov, who's got lower output, 4.87. That's a bigger sample size, of course. So that leads to more of a real number. We can't say that 6.47 is quite a real number yet. Nonetheless, here, just the numbers are telling us that if it's a striking battle and it's somewhat close, you would imagine that Hafel will win that on the uh, on the statistics, on the, on the numbers, right? So the negative striking ratio, by the way, for Zuma Gulov, it's a byproduct of his subpar striking defense. It's not so much his volume. I mean, landing 4.87 is not that bad. That's I would say around the average for this division. But the problem with him is he's getting hit too much. Limited head movement. Hands are kind of over here. You never see Zuma Gulov like up in here. Let's do the Brandon Moreno stuff. He's hittable. He's available to get hit. Uh, he's got confidence in his chin, maybe too much at times. And so that's why his numbers are at this 5.37 per minute. Now, over the course of three rounds, Zuma Gulov needs to secure some top control on the ground against the fence, maybe some kind of control. Because on the feet, it's not adding up, right? He has one finish over his last six years, over his last 11 fights. So six-year time frame, one finish, 11 fights in that time frame, he's not a finisher. 
Not knockout power, not submission ability. Again, a reason why I believe this fight possibly goes to the scorecards. And for Rafael, if he's trying to finish my man here, Zimogulov, Zimogulov is also very durable. Okay, matter of fact, I have to check the numbers here, but he's not a guy who's been finished very often. And so I don't believe that's going to happen to him here either. So he ends up usually dependent on a scorecard situation here for Zimogulov, looking for the judges to help him out, right? Well, due to his lack of finishing ability and his low volume, he ends up in these squeaky close decisions. And a matter of fact, back to that split decision thought we had earlier. My man over here, Zimogulov, has been to split decision three times, three times, tres veces in his last seven fights. That's almost 50% of the time. <laughs> That's a very high number. Does it happen here again? No, maybe not, maybe not. But what does probably happen here is we go to a decision. I, I foresee Hafel Estevam wins the better part of two rounds in a dominant fashion. So it's it's very clear he's winning those rounds. Outside of him just falling apart gas-wise or getting rocked and we have a 10-8 round or a point getting taken, right? Uh, you know, barring those factors, you would see this fight going to the scorecards. And so I feel like the, the overs here are great. Distance props, start round two, start round three, where we can get them at that are decent, parlay some of that stuff. That's why we're pointing in that direction. And then we think the younger fighter here has enough, enough volume, more volume, more ground control to edge out a win over Zimogulov. And for Zimogulov, I don't think the UFC lets go of him. I mean, he's going to fall to, he's one and four in his last five fights. So it's a rough stretch. I don't think they let go of him. He's a good gatekeeper. He's been a, you know, available opponent for whoever they need him to fight. Um, in the case of Rafael, this is a good test for him, for the UFC debutante. For the bets, here we go. We like the fight going over one and a half rounds. The odds are not out yet for that, so I don't know what the price is, but I'm going to say to you that I'm worried about the fight the longer it goes. You know, I'm worried about this kid, Rafael, making a mistake. I'm worried about uh, Zuma Gulov cap, you know, packing it in, saying, I'm getting old, man. This kid won't stop. Let me get out of here before I take too much damage. The over one and a half is going to be juicy. It's going to be like minus, oh, 350. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe minus 400. That's okay. I'll partly that with something else. Make some sense of it. But I feel better with that than like the over two and a half or fight goes to distance where you got more time for, for bad shit to happen. Fight starts round number three. Again, odds are not out on that either yet. Fight goes to decision is minus 170. So there you go. The books are telling you you're getting some minus money there. It's getting close to two to one. I can see it moving all the way to two to one at some point because most people will probably conclude this fight goes to the scorecards. Probably not the worst bet, but do you want to put 1.7 units on that to win, you know, a unit? I don't know you want to do that. Do you want to parlay it? Ooh, that's uh, getting frisky. Not sure about that. Zumagulov by decision at plus 200. Estevan by decision at plus 125. And we'll likely sprinkle the split props here for both fighters because Zumagulov's track record of going to split decisions. That's your breakdown, guys. I know very long-winded, but I uh, wanted to give you our analysis in detail as possible. We could have a split here, guys. And you know we love splits. I like to sprinkle those props. So when the props come out and the prices come out, look out for those to be on our tip sheet. Again, our tip sheet's available through our newsletter, and that link is down below. We have a free version of our newsletter and a paid version. The paid version is a whopping 5 bucks a month. So I know it's very costly, but for those who can't afford it, just kidding with you guys, we do have a free version as well. But uh, it's your way of also showing support for our channel and our content. So check it out. The link is down below. Let's move on with the score. Let's move on with I said scorecard. Let's move on with this breakdown of this fight card. Here we go.
making our way up the card. Next fight's gonna be a middleweight bout. 185 pounders, Ikram Alaskerov from Russia versus Phil Hawes, the American. Now, of course, Phil Hawes been around now for a little bit in the UFC. I mean, he's not a veteran, but he's been around now for a few years. You know of him. Very athletic, explosive, pretty good fighter everywhere. His wrestling is underrated, got finishing ability, tons to like about him. In this matchup, he is currently favored at... Oh, he's a dog. I'm sorry. He's plus 190. You've got Ikram at minus 225. And uh, don't know why I thought he was the favorite. I don't know what I was thinking. But in terms of the fight, who we like to win, we'll give you that right away before we get into this breakdown. I like set off by round two submission, which is at plus 1400. That is our prediction. So again, Ikram Alexedov, who's currently minus 225 on the line over Phil Hawes by round two submission. That's our pick. I'll give you the details in these two fighters. For Ikram Alexedov, the Russian 13-1 overall. Impressive. Five of his last five fights out of Machkala, Russia, which is in the region of Dagestan. <laughs> okay, so he's got that going for him. 30 years old, six foot in height with a 76-inch reach, trains at a gym called Champion. I'm repeating what's on Tapology. Some of these gyms are not up to date. On Tapology is what it is. For Phil Halls, who goes by No Hype, 12 and four overall, three and two in his last five fights out of Little Ferry, New Jersey. Now must be in Florida. He's at Kilcliffe uh, FC, which is in Florida. So very good gym. He's six feet, so same height as his opponent here, but has a 77.5 inch reach, about an inch and a half reach advantage. If you know Phil Haas, he's you know very jacked. The dude looks like a, a fitness model and then also happens to have long arms, which is good for this uh, profession. He's 34, Phil Haas, that is, about four years older and has more experience in UFC, which we'll talk about. Let's get into our breakdown, these two guys. Again, we like Ikram Alexedov to win this fight by round two submission. That's plus 1,400. He's making his UFC debut after earning his contract on Contender Series last year. A lot of guys on Contender Series that are making their debut on this card, right? For Alexedov, he's earned five submission wins over his 13 wins. So, my man's got some submission ability. It seems like it's not a very high rate. I would just say this. His submissions are nasty. Look at the stuff on film. He can uh, hit Kimura your ass fast. Matter of fact, his last few fights had a few Kimuras and has matter of, what, three of his last four fights, he's had a Kimura submission. There we go. During that stretch, he also submitted Tululian. I gotta say that name slowly, Tululian. Now, Tululian is currently in the UFC and uh, they fought, he submitted him in round number three or number two. Uh, nonetheless, yeah, Kimuras, rear naked chokes, arm bars, the whole nine. This guy is a submission guru. That's where he really goes to if he wants to finish his opponent. Now, the only issue we have this guy likes cut off is that he's very hittable. Uh, his striking numbers on contender series, he absorbs 7.91 strikes per minute. And I'm like, wow, I, I didn't, you know, I had to look back at the fight. I watched it. I'm like, yeah, I guess he is kind of hittable, right? His hands are low. He, he's so focused on getting the fight to the ground that he'll just eat like 30 punches in the process. And we know how that works. I mean, it's like you could do it sometimes, but you know, 70% 70, 70 of the time, it doesn't work. You know, like, it's that 70% of the time when you go in there and make that mistake and someone elbows you in the side of the head or you take too many punches, like, it just doesn't work all the time. So he absorbs more than double the amount of strikes that he's dishing out, negative striking ratio out the wazoo. Now, Phil Hawes is good enough in kickboxing. He's got good striking. If this guy lets Phil Hawes hit him anywhere around that amount of times per minute, um, I think Phil Hawes can knock his ass out. Now, I grant it's a small sample size. I understand one fight as well in the contender series. It ended early because he had a submission. But I'm just saying, like, it seems to be like he's the kind of guy where he's 
very committed to the ground game, and he'll eat a lot of punches in the process. Now, for Alex Ketoff, Alex Ketoff, I'm sorry, his path to victory is hitched to takedowns and submissions. If not submissions that are executed, at least submission attempts, which can win you some points on the scorecards. He absolutely, 100%, cannot sit there and stand with Phil Hawes. That would be um, risque, put it that way. Now, as for Phil Hawes, explosive fighter with knockout power. He comes into this fight off of a round one knockout loss himself to Delitza, and he's dropped two of his last three fights. A bit of a rough stretch. Now, in his defense, those two losses were against Chris Curtis and Roman Delitza. Good fighters, guys that are household names. You know, we know these guys. Now, looking over his run in the UFC, we can't help but notice that he's lacking quality wins, okay? So his win over, for example, Imovov, that's definitely his best win. That's Nasser Adin Imovov, and that's a quality fighter. Went to decision, I believe. That's his best win. Other than that, it's like, you know, he beat Deron Wynn. Like, Deron, little Deron Wynn, he pieced this dude up. And eventually, Deron Wynn couldn't take any more. Deron Wynn showed a lot of heart in that fight. But Deron Wynn's an undersized fighter for this division. Very stocky wrestler, one-dimensional. And then he beat Kaldakis. And the initial win over Kaldakis by Hawes looked better than it did now. Because now you're seeing Kaldakis probably has some limitations and it's on the fringe of like, you know, he, he's not going to get cut, but he's on the fringe of that division. And I don't think we're going to see Cal be much, much better than where he's at now. Meaning like he'll stay, he'll hang around. He probably could make some improvements, but there's limitations there. And so for Phil Hawes, initially good win, but it's like, you know, it's not as impressive now as it was back then. And of course, against, you know, Deron Wynn, if you looked at Deron Wynn fight and you're watching Phil Hawes, you know nothing about UFC and how this shit works. You're thinking, damn. Phil Hawes is amazing. But, you know, with all due respect, it's just the caliber of competition in that fight. He was overmatching his opponent in every which way, shape, or form. So that fight can kind of distort people's understanding of how good or, you know, or how not good Phil Hawes I mean, yeah, Phil, uh, Phil Hawes is. So just put it out there. Um, yeah, Hawes tore his ass apart. Now, for Phil Hawes, his kryptonite is cardio and durability. He's been finished in all four of his defeats, three knockouts, and one submission. Early in fights, he looks athletic and powerful. Unfortunately, he morphs into a low-volume striker with poor wrestling after round one. It's pretty simple. Gas tank depletes. Now he doesn't have as much power in his hands or his wrestling. He becomes a sitting duck. He has the balls, the heart to survive and get to the entire you know fight. He's done it before. But he is the proverbial shell of himself at some point when he starts to deplete and loses energy. So endurance for us might be the most significant factor in who wins this fight, especially beyond round number one. For round one, I think both guys will be enough intact. For Hawes, has a tendency to slow down a lot. At the same time, he does have decision wins over Dawkins and Imovov. We can't forget that and say, well, he has no cardio. Like, you know, he's done this before. It's just, you know, even his physique. This guy's very jacked. He's very strong. And you always wonder with these guys, you know, is that sucking their gas tank a little more than the person who's just not as muscle bound? And for him, that question's out there. For Alex Ketoff, he went to decision in one fight last year. Of his, He had two fights last year. He went to one of them, went to decision. So he's got some level of also winning by decision. But we don't expect this fight to go to the full distance. We think someone gets a finish here. And a decision, it, listen, put it this way. We're not sure we get a finish. It just seems to me like you got a guy with the submission ability of uh, the Russian here, Alex Ketoff. You've got the power and finishing skills of Phil Hawes. I think we see a finish, but a decision is not outside the realm of possibility. Probably one of the fights that I feel the less confident about the over-under and fight going to the decision. For the betting spots, we like the most of this fight. We like the fight starting in round number two. That price is not out yet. Fight does not go to distance. 
at minus 230, Hawes by knockout at plus 350, and Alex Ketoff by knockout at, I'm sorry, by submission at plus 450. So do repeat that for you guys. So those props, or, or the props or betting spots would like the most of this fight are the fight starting round number two, fight doesn't go the distance at minus 230, Hawes by knockout at plus 350, and Alex Ketoff by submission at plus 450. The exact method of victory for us here that we like, we like round two submission for Ikram Alaskedov. That's currently sitting at plus 1,400. And that's kind of amazing when you think about it. This guy's got round one, round two submissions, round three submissions all over his resume. And, I mean, Phil Haas is not going to lay over, let him submit him. But if you get into a bad Kimura, it doesn't matter how tough you are. You know, your shoulder's going to get ripped out. And I think Alaskedov has the chance to pull it off. All right, that's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on to the next fight. And now we've got a clash of the Titans. Heavyweights, 265 pounders, my goodness. Or 265 pounders. It sounded like I just said 265 pounders. No, two big boys combining for over a half a ton in weight. Parker Porter's 13 and 8 overall versus Braxton Smith, who's 5 and 1 overall. Before we get to the details of these two fighters, we'll give you our pick and our method right now. Parker Porter by round two, ground and pound. That's sitting at plus 1,200. That's our prediction now. Ground and pound meaning TKO, right? So ground two finish of some kind by Porter on the ground by some kind of knockout. TKO, ref stepping in. Braxton had enough. He's tired. That's plus 1,200. That's our pick here for how the fight will end and who's, who's going to win the fight. Let's talk here about the details. Mr. Porter, 13-8 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A bit of a veteran. Looking back on his resume, when I saw he fought John Jones, I'm like, I completely forgot about this. So, yeah, he's fought some people, been around for a minute. Porter is out of New Britain, Connecticut, 38 years old. And, you know, before you saw, oh, he's too old, like, you know, 40, for 40, 41, 42 for heavyweights, it's still a thing. And so for heavyweights, he's kind of like, you know, he's still in the midst of his prime, I guess. I don't know. 38 years old, he's not too old. Six feet high with a 75-inch reach. He's out of underdog mixed martial arts. As for Braxton Smith, who goes by the beautiful monster, this guy's new to the scene. I'll give you a whole breakdown on him. I watched his stuff. I got a good read in this guy. And I have an amazing prop bet. If you're going to bet in this guy, I've got the prop bet for you to bet in this guy. He's a very easy fighter to evaluate, which we'll talk about. So Mr. Smith, 5-1 and one overall, has won five fights in a row after losing his first pro fight. He's out of Austin, Texas, 33 years old, very young for a heavyweight, you know, just kind of getting started here. May have a bright future. He's 5'11", though. 5'11", uh, probably not making that 265, probably weighing in more like around, mm, I'm going to guesstimate like 235, 245 range just based upon that 5'11 height or lack thereof. We don't have a reach number on him and no gym for Braxton Smith. All right, let's talk numbers in these two guys. For Mr. Porter, we like him doing this fight by around two ground and pound. That's our prediction. Smith is making his UFC walk for the first time and looks to extend his winning streak to six fights in a row. So that's one five in a row after losing his his debut. All five of his wins, here it is, guys. All five of his wins, first round knockouts. Now in there was a kick, and it was the perfect kick. He had the he had the kick where like he kicked the guy, and the guy dipped down at the same time. The way that uh, Leon Edwards knocked out Kamar Usman, it was like that, and the guy just you know kind of floated to the ground. That was it. I don't look at Braxton as much of a kicker or kickboxer. He's more of a slugger, a brawler, but he did have that kick. <laughs> it was perfect timing. It was nice. It was a beautiful thing. His only blemish on his career was his professional debut where he lost to a guy you may have heard of, Chase Sherman. 
And when I saw the name, I'm like, no, no, dude. But you got to factor this. Chase is not completely 100% terrible. When you take him out to the UFC, you put him in smaller promotions, or he's fighting a, a new fighter who's never fought. I believe Braxton had no amateur experience, so it's like brand new. You, you know, you're jumping in there with a guy like Chase who at least maybe, you know, had some level of experience, and Braxton loses the fight. By decision, I believe, right? So don't crucify this guy because of that loss. I don't think that's appropriate. I think we have to look at that loss and say, hey, it happens. First pro fight. He's bounced back well from that standpoint. And Chase would go on to get into the UFC three times. He's on his third tour of duty, right? Smith is a shorter heavyweight. He's got a stocky physique, similar in height to Porter, so he won't look much shorter, right? He just does this one thing and one thing only. He looks for one punch. He looks for it. He winds up, doesn't throw it. He winds up. Then he winds up and he throws it. And then if he gets you in like in a range, he'll throw a few other punches. Like he'll fake this little left hand jab, this like open hand. Like it's nothing. It's not to hit you. It's just he could hit you with this uh, this right hand. So he's always looking for this one power shot. Now up to now it works. You, you could watch him in fights, literally just looking at a guy like I'm coming, and the guy will, like back up and get against the fence, and then he'll just go wham and hit the dude. People have their hands up. He's splitting guard with their with this punch. He's knocking their head back, and. Yeah, he's a brute. He's a brute. He's got one heavy hand. Now, I did see a fight where he hit somebody with a left hand. And I was watching it thinking, hmm. But, man, it was such a weird punch. The guy's name eludes me, but he hits a guy with a left hand hook. And this dude folds like a cheap suitcase. And a low-level opponent. And nonetheless, it's it's all like, you know, I'm throwing with heat. I'm going to knock you out. And... So far, it's been good. No jab, no combinations. His path to victory is the touch of death. He hits you like you've been hit by a truck. (laughs) And um, in this fight, I'll tell you what. If you're talking about a path to victory, that round one knockout for Braxton Smith when it comes out, that's got to be the spot, guys, because he's fighting a guy in Parker Porter who has a history of durability issues. Porter's been finished in seven of his eight defeats. Yeah, I, I kind of forgot about this. I'm like, you know, Porter's, you know, been around. He's tough. You know, he's kind of got like that good old American white boy toughness in him. Uh, my man's been finished quite a bit. I mean, he gets finished almost every single time he loses. I mean, all but one time, right? So there's that window there, okay? Now, on top of that, right? On top of Parker getting finished, right? Seven times in his eight defeats. That includes round one knockouts in two of his last three defeats. And in total, Parker Porter's been knocked out four times in round number one. Oh, 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 I mean, it's it's MMA math. We can't, you know, you can't risk your mortgage on this. But something tells me if Braxton Smith were to win this fight, it would be in round one by knockout. That's been his only method of victory. And my man here, Parker Porter's happened to him four times. Just saying. So... Something to think about. <laughs> now, for Porter, he's a fan favorite. Parker Porter, Porker Porter. You know, he's he's the guy who's you know working at the at the factory in Milwaukee somewhere. He sees some he that guy in Milwaukee sees some of himself in the mirror when he looks at Parker Porter. Like, you know, not not the kind of body that's going to go and win like a bathing suit contest, but like, you know, I'm a grown ass American man. I'm tough. I'm out here swinging, you know, swinging my fists out here, do the best I can. So Par- Parker, I think, represents a lot of the average. 
you know, American man who's like, I'm a little overweight, man, but you can do it, Parker. So he's a fan favorite. He's been lacing it up now since 2007. So he's a veteran. This fight will mark his seventh with the UFC, his 22nd fight of his career in total. So 22 total fights. Along the way, he's faced some guys you might recognize. He fought once upon a time against John Jones. And what do you think happened? Yeah, John Jones knocked his ass out. <laughs> or did he submit him? I have to double check my records, but John Jones finished him. And then Parker Porter fought Jolton Almeida, a guy who depends on how his career goes. You could just sort of see this guy eventually contending, at least contending for a title, right? As a light heavyweight. Nasty, this Almeida guy. So look, bottom line is Parker has fought way better competition than my man Braxton Smith. Though he's been finished and squashed by some of that competition, he's he's been in there. He's had an opportunity to share the cage with some of these guys. Now, Porter's a solid wrestler, especially for a heavyweight, averaging 1.43 takedowns per fight. That's a good number for heavyweights. And if he gets on top of a guy, he wears like all his weight up in here. It's hard to get that butter bean off of you. So if he can get Braxton down and test the gas tag at Braxton, I think that's going to be like, that's the path, man. That's the way to slow this guy down. On the feet, like... Why would Parker want to stand with Braxton for any long period of time? That would seem like um, not a good idea. <laughs> He's also active in terms of his punching for Porter. High volume for heavyweight, landing 6.49 strikes per minute. Very surprising. Now, our only critique of Porter is his lack of finishing ability. Well, along with, the obviously, the durability issues. We talked about that before. But his lack of finishing ability. His last three wins have been via decision. And he hasn't finished an opponent in about four years, 2019. So Porter needs to survive round number one here with Smith. He needs to survive that first round knockout power of Smith. And he should have a significant endurance advantage after that. He's been to round two, been to round three. He's won his last, what, three or four fights by decision. So Porter, he knows what that's about. I do want to say something about Smith on film. And if you want access to film, by the way, check out again our Excel sheet, our data sheet. That link to access our data sheet is down below. That's in our Google Drive. The data sheet has a film library with links to prior fights, all nice and organized. It has stats, details of both fighters, fighter comparisons, our statistical analysis. It's all in our data sheet and that's available on our Google Drive. And you can find that by following the link below here for our Google Drive. Um, okay, so back to what we're talking about right here. Um, oh, my detail I wanted to share with you guys. If you watch the prior fights of Braxton Smith, what you're going to notice, even though he'll finish his opponent, as soon as that happens, right, it's over with, he is so fatigued. Uh, he, it's not the fatigue of like, ah, I just fought a two-round, three-round, you know, grueling fight, or I fought a... It's, it looks like he just ran some wind sprints, and he's huffing and puffing. And I just, I noticed it. I noticed it in several fights where he gets the win. It's a first-round knockout of some kind, and then he just looks gassed. And I'm like, man, how does this unfold if somehow Parker Porter gets it to round number two? Um, okay, I've said enough. Let me get to the details of the betting spots here. For the betting spots, we like the most of this fight. We're going to go with the um, fight not going to decision at minus 400. At some point, either Porter gets knocked down in round one or this guy gasses out. So the fight not going to decision at minus 400 is a parlay piece Though we have seen heavyweight bouts go decision recently, which is frustrating, but I do like that as a possible parlay piece, which will be on our tip sheet if we're going to do that. Smith by round one knockout is plus 250. That's a spot you absolutely have to bet. You got to do it. I mean, think about this, guys. You're getting plus 250 
for a scenario that checks two primary boxes. One, Porter has been finished in round one. Matter of fact, twice in his last three losses, probably those probably twice over his last five or six fights, you know? Um, and four times in his career. And this guy has got all five wins in round one. I mean, if you miss this prop and it happens, you're going to look back on it and say, like, well, all the math said it was going to happen. So I got to play this. Um, and then Porter with a round two finish at plus 600. I got to play that too because the minute the bell rings in round one for the round being over, I'm thinking this guy Smith goes back to the corner and he's like, I don't have, I have nothing. And Porter goes out there in round two and just suffocates him on the ground. And eventually Smith, in essence, has like, you know, tapping out verbally. Like, I just can't. I'm done. Oxygen tank, please. And so, yeah, Porter round two finish of any kind because it could be a sub and it could be a TKO with Porter. He's got both. And then with uh, Smith, that round one knockout plus 250, some spots that I think you want to take a look at. But just to summarize there again, we are on Parker Porter by a round two ground and pound to win at plus 1,200. That's our pick. Let's keep it moving, boys. Making our way up the card, next fight's a women's bout. Strawweight division, 115 pounders. You got Marina Rodriguez versus Virna Jenderoba. I want to say that name slowly. I kind of roll that D-I-R-O all the time, and I, I messed it up. I'll call her Virna for the rest of the time here. Two Brazilian fighters. You recognize them both. Been around the last few years. Similar in age, 36, 34, and a lot of similarities in general. One's more of a grappler, though. One's more of a striker. We'll get into that in a second. We'll give you our pick right now before we get into this. We like Marina Rodriguez to win this fight by decision. That's plus 130 currently. And price to sell, right? Uh, the book doesn't give you that price tag because, you know, they're, they're going to give you a freebie here. They recognize, like everyone else will recognize, the most likely path to victory here for Maria, Maria. Um, it's not Maria. It's Marina. But I still want to see that song. Uh, Marina, the most likely path to victory for her is probably on the scorecard. She's not a you know high knockout percentage type of fighter. Reminds me of like the female version of uh, this guy, uh, Sean Strickland. A lot of volume um, at times because volume numbers are actually questionable with her. But the point is she's got that technique of like, I'll hit you, I'll touch you, but I'm not going to knock you out with any one punch. And so she reminds me of that. As for Virna Genjanova, oh my gosh, here we go with the name Genjanova. As for Virna, I believe with her, her path of victory is pretty simple. It's on the ground, wrestling, right? Position control. Maybe go after a submission. Maybe. All right, going back to the beginning here. So 16-2-2 two two for Marina, 4-1 in her last five fights. She's currently the favorite at minus, minus 135. So it's a pick em. Minus 135 for her, plus 115 for Roba. And this line has come down. I believe Marina opened like minus 165, minus 175 ish. And so now we're down to a pick him. Makes sense. We like Virna, you know, as, as a possible dog pick here. We don't like her to win, but we have her on our data sheet marked as a possible live dog. So we can see it. We can see it. Uh, Marina here, five foot six in height, 65 inch reach, 36 years old, out of Santa Carina, Brazil, trained out of CT Thai, Brasilia, Floripa. For Virna, 18 and three overall, just about the same amount of experience, three to her last five fights, also out of Brazil, 34 years old in 11 months. So she's about to be 35. You got Marina at 36, about the same age, five, three for Virna, though. I didn't imagine from seeing them both fight before. I didn't realize Marina is that much taller. I think that number's off. I believe they're both around five, five ish. That's just my, my off the, you know, cup guess. Maybe Marina's a little bit taller, but not that much taller. And then in terms of reach 65 for Marina, 64 for Virna. And Virna's out of Academy of Fight House. All right, as for our breakdown, 
Again, we said we like Marina by decision. Rodriguez is a fluid kickboxer, nice combinations, good volume. Against the right opponent, she can overwhelm her opponent with just strikes, forward pressure, pretty good power, not amazing power, but good pressure, good pace. That was not the case, though, in her last fight. <laughs> she was outmatched on the feet against Amanda Lemos. And on that note, by the way, if I could just get on my soapbox for a second, I like Jason Herzog. But, man, that, that stoppage looked a little premature. And if you go back and watch the fight, I think you'll kind of agree with me here. The fight was stopped number one on the feet. And that's always like a scenario where you're like, oh, man, they're still standing. And you can cite, for example, the the the, the second or third or whatever fight with between um, Adesanya and um, Pereira, where Pereira wins the fight and Adesanya's on his feet, right? Kind of like, you know, melting a little bit and the referee comes in and stops it. But that was later in the fight, right? A lot had happened before that. And this fight here, I found it to be obnoxious. The fight was stopped. I, I really couldn't believe it. And I like Jason Herzog, but unless, like maybe Marina said something, which I don't believe she did because of the actions afterwards, it just didn't make any sense. Now, Marina gets hit by a hard shot and definitely wobbles from a Lemos punch. There's no question. And she kind of, her hands come down a little bit, but then she returns her hands back up to block punches. Amanda comes forward very aggressive, missing like almost everything, hits a few things, and you see, you know, now Marina is like backing up, getting her hands up against the fence, and again, missing a lot of punches by Lemos. Lemos is hitting the gloves now, and Herzog just calls it off. Immediately, immediately, you see Marina is not cloudy, not dizzy, not phased, not confused. She's right in the face of Herzog. Like, what are you doing? I'm She's on her feet, never got knocked down, wasn't bloody, wasn't swollen. Uh, this was like round two or three of, or round two maybe, yeah, round two possibly of a three-round fight. Just absolute awful. And I thought to myself, okay, refereeing is not easy. There's moments you're like, you know, they get criticized for not stopping it soon enough, right? But dude, Herzog, they were still standing. You know, th This is not like amateur boxing and stop it early. Like this is supposed to be professional mixed martial arts. There was no blood. It just doesn't really add up. And I thought to myself, that's not the worst part of this. Here's the worst part of this. If referees are stopping fights that early like this, then we'll never get fights like CJ Vergara versus Lacerda, the one in Texas, that amazing comeback by, by CJ. We'll never get Nate Langweir versus Onama. No, just anytime someone gets hurt on their feet, they're still standing, no blood. Early, early in the fight, we're going to stop the fight. Man, awful situation. I'm not upset for Marina that she got the loss. I'm more like upset for the sport. Like we're signing up to watch fighting. They're signing up to fight and we, we can't have early stoppages like that. It just, it, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's early in the fight. No one's bleeding. We deserve to see more CJ Vergara moments. It happened last weekend with um, my man, uh, Julian Arosa. I know he was hurt. He was probably gonna get finished either way, but like you can't stop it that quickly in round one. You, you gotta let this thing play out. And for Jason Herzog, my girl here, Marina, was right in his face right away. Like, she was right there. And I do want to also say this. Side note. The commentary team there, absolutely, uh, like, co-conspirators in this. The comments from the commentary booth, I'm not going to name anybody by name, but they were saying things like, oh, her eyes roll back in her head. Oh, my God. If you were to base the commentary on what do you think was happening, just not even seeing the fight, you would think they were going to take Marina out of there on a stretcher. 
And they were saying, like, she, her, her eyes were in the back of her head. She was out on her feet. No, <laughs> that never happened. And it's in the cage. It's in, you know, the apex. They're screaming. Jason Herzog can see them and hear them. And it's like, you know, it's just, oh, it's a mess. It's a mess. But a weird outcome. I thought a fight that maybe she should rematch at some point. Get back there with Lamos and see if she could do something. Now, Lamos was tearing her apart. Don't get me wrong. Round one may have gone to Marina, but round two was, was going to Lamos and she was looking better. Back to this breakdown. Let's get back here to, to our talk here about Marina Rodriguez. So she's a skilled striker, lacks the lacks a ground game. Even Lamos, who's not a ground like known for her ground skills, was able to like trip and take down Marina with ease. And if Lamos could do that, then it's like anyone who's actually got decent wrestling probably should be able to do that, which is Rina Danderoba, who's a pretty good wrestler, right? So for Rodriguez, she needs to keep the fight standing. I mean, that's her only possible way to win this fight on the scorecard, just keep it standing. With only 65% takedown defense and having shown before she can be taken down by people that are not good at takedowns, she has her work cut out here against Jejeroba. And I think that, honestly, the more I look at this fight, the more I think that Jejeroba is probably the right side. At plus 115, I think I'm actually changing my pick right now. I am. I'm changing my pick. I'm going to go with Virna Jejeroba to win this fight by decision. And I, I don't know why I, I kind of I flip flop back and forth before, but I'm gonna go with Virna Jenjanova to win this fight by decision. That's my pick. I think that she gets into those to the body of Rodriguez. She gets her down enough, holds her down for a long enough period of time, and eventually just wins on the scorecards. It's gonna be ugly, not gonna be pretty. I believe Virna goes after a few submissions, but doesn't get them. I mean, keep in mind, look, she is a very good grappler. Her striking's not good, Jenjanova, but her grappling's pretty good. And while the fight's on the mat, she'll have a big advantage. She earns 2.31 takedowns per fight. I mean, she'll need to do something there. 10 of her 18 victories have been way of submission. Wow. So 10, 10 submission wins for Jejanova. It's a testament to her ground skills, right? Now, as for striking, that's where she's weak. She has a negative striking ratio. Never been finished. She's never been finished by strikes. I'm sorry. Has never finished an opponent with strikes. So, you know, again, striking is, is limited, right? The game plan for her is pretty simple. Stay off the stay off the you know off the feet, get on the ground. You got 15 minutes to keep the fight as much of a clinch, control, whatever, because 15 minutes at range, boxing, Rodriguez, she'll lose that fight every single time. A little side note here for you guys. 56% of female UFC fights this year, 2023, have ended in a split decision or a submission. Now, last weekend, we almost had both scenarios because the fight with Haley Cowan was close, man. I thought we were going to get a split there. We didn't get a split. She lost by decision. Next fight, we all had Haley, we all had Edgar winning by submission. Uh, we got a submission, all right, but it was the other girl, Alexiva, getting a submission. So again, 56%, more than half of the female fights in the UFC this year have finished by either a split or a submission. I believe both scenarios are in play with this fight. I believe we could go to the scorecards. And I believe also Jan Janoba can obviously possibly blow up a submission. She's got 10 of them already, right? The spotlight from a betting perspective here are going to be the fight going over one and a half rounds. That price is not available yet. The fight goes the distance at minus 200. Jan Janoba by submission at plus 425. And then either girl by split. We sprinkle those splits. But yeah, I changed my pick there along the way, guys. I had... Now that I thought about it, as much as I like Rodriguez, she's a good striker, and she's very skilled and has fought good opponents. The difference here is going to be the grappling, and I think Jejeroba gets her down, gets enough control time, and that was the fight. That's my pick, guys. Jejeroba to win the fight by decision. Let's move on.
Okay, next one in the car is going to be a welterweight bout. 170 pounders. Chaos Williams at minus 305 on the line versus Rolando Bedoya, who's plus 255. And we do like Chaos to win the fight by decision. That's our method of victory for Chaos Williams by decision. Let me get the details on these two guys. So welterweight bout, 170 pounders. Mr. Williams is 13-3 overall. 3-2 in his last five fights. A big favor here, minus 305 out of Detroit, Michigan. 29, 29 years young. Six foot high with a 77 inch reach, and he's out of Mercy Lago MMA. As for Rolando Bedoya, on tapology, he's got no age listed, but we looked him up. He's 26 years young, so young fighter, 5'11 in height with a 75.2 inch reach, giving up about an inch in height and roughly about two inches in reach. He's 14 and one overall, very good record for Rolando, five in his last five fights. He's a dog here around plus 240 ish, and again, out of Peru, specifically out of Lima, Peru, trained out of Fortaleza. Fortaleza, <laughs> my bad. Rolando Bedoya goes by the machine, and uh, that's a good nickname because this guy is a bit of a machine. He fights a uh, crazy pace. You, you can't finish this guy. He's um, he's a zombie. <laughs> we'll talk about it in a second. So Williams, by decision, is our pick. He's the more experienced of the two fighters. He's known for his punching power, but three of his last four fights have gone to the scorecards. That includes a split decision loss in his last fight. Now, we expect that trend to continue against Bedoya, and here's why. Bedoya's raw, and he's got a lot of things he needs to improve, and his UFC debut, I get all it. But the dude's got the heart of a lion. Like, literally, I mean, is he Mexican? No, he should be Mexican. This guy's, you know, he's from Peru, but he's got a Mexican heart. This guy does not go down, doesn't go away. Gets, gets rattled, <laughs> gets wobbled, but however you hit him, He's going to recover. He's going to come back. And that's his method of breaking people. Like, they're just like, I can't keep hitting this guy. My hands are hurting me. He's keep, he keeps coming forward, right? So, now, Chaos has a technical advantage and a power advantage in a striking. He does have that. Not a ton of volume, though. We've seen him looking for the perfect punch sometimes for too long of a period of time. I can imagine rounds where he has less volume but has the better strikes. It looks cleaner. He does more damage. He's the one with the cleaner face. Bedoya's starting to bleed a little bit. But Bedoya's just throwing more and going forward. That's kind of the way this guy fights. Now, without question, again, Chaos has faced much better competition. Now, in terms of wrestling, that's a great area for Chaos Williams. He's not an offensive wrestler, but his defense is pretty good. And he gets back up and he gets taken down. So from that perspective, I do like that. But he's not an offensive wrestler. Now, the only critique we have here of Williams is this. Beyond the wrestling is that the finish rate has declined. Here's a guy who had a very high finish rate at some point. And now these last three or four fights, things are slowing down. Is he now moving over to a safer fighter? Is he looking more to win on, on points? Um, or will he go back to the Chaos Williams of old? Chaos Williams finishing people, right? For Rolando, the Peruvian prospect making his UFC debut, his first time walking in the octagon, a few things come out on film with him right away. You notice this. Okay, number one, he wants to mix it up. There's no like waiting a period, like little jabbing. And now he's coming out to fight. He doesn't mind eating a few punches either. And he won't back down even when he gets hurt. Okay. His striking is sloppy at best, which leaves him wide open for counters. And that's why in prior fights, you've seen him get clipped, man. He's just wide open. He's loose. He's maybe a little too confident in his chin. He is young, 26, right? He does his best work when he's up close against his fighters, right? So against the fence, on the ground, at range, again, he's just so sloppy. He's not skilled there. So it needs to be in close. And against a guy like Chaos Williams, if I'm coaching Rolando, I'm telling him, look, 
close the distance. Don't stay at range with this guy. You're going to get buzzed. Just get in close. Lean on him. Make it a sweaty, ugly battle. Do some dirty boxing. That, to me, would be the way to go. Now, the thing about this guy, Mr. Rolando, against lower-level competition, he's been able to bully them, lean on people, regional scene guys, rip them to the ground. Not great grappling or great submission, great submission skills or great wrestling, but it works against that competition. I don't believe it works against Williams, though. I think Williams has enough wrestling defense skills and getting up technique that even if he gets taken down, he gets back up quickly. And I don't believe Orlando has much success there. That's just my interpretation of, of his skill level based upon his film. But damn it, if I got to say again, this dude will not go away. And I could foresee a scenario where even though he gets clipped a few times, Orlando that is, he somehow survives a distance and gives my man Chaos at least three full good rounds. But Chaos is going away. 30-27, or maybe even 30-26, a winner on the scorecards. Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse him. Wow. The betting spots we like the most for this fight are going to be the fight going over one and a half rounds. That price is not available yet. Fight starts round three. Also, that price is not available yet. Williams by decision, and Williams into the distance. Now, conveniently enough, none of these prices are available. I looked on the uh, Best Fight Odds website. Not there. So, again, we like the fight going over one and a half rounds. Fight starts round number three. Williams by decision, and Williams into the distance and again the pick to win is going to be mr chaos williams by decision that's your pick guys let's move on moving up the card light heavyweight bout these 205 pounders the big boys devin clark who goes by the brown bear and kennedy ninjuku who goes by the african savage and he is from africa he hails from nigeria now via texas before we go to the breakdown we'll give you our pick to win we like the brown bear Devin Clark by a round two knockout. That's currently sitting at plus 1,800. I mean, 10 bucks to win 180 bucks. Sexy, sexy. All right. Um, full disclosure. I've interviewed Devin Clark twice. Uh, pleasure both times. Very, very nice guy. If you go on YouTube and search him up, you'll see plenty of interviews. He's a guy who gives interviews. Very nice. Very welcoming. A hard person to ever root against. I got to know him a little bit, though, and I could tell you, I'm going with him to win the fight because two two reasons. One, I do like the guy. I want him to win the fight. But number two, like there's legit rationale behind how he's improved recently, made some good changes, and I believe is becoming the best version of himself in terms of the octagon. And even outside the octagon, like his life outside the cage is actually, you know, also improving in many ways. So from that standpoint, I, I have some credible reasons or credible resources as to why I think he should win the fight. For Kennedy and Juku. I'm going to say something about him in a few minutes here. It's going to sound rough, but I want to, I want to preface this. I never talk personally bad about a fighter. I don't do that. I don't, I don't condone that kind of stuff. I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's low hanging fruit to take shots at people. Even when we know things about their personal life, like let's not, let's be better than that. Right. Let's not take shots at their personal life or, or pass judgment on like, Oh, he quit in a fight. We can give the analysis based upon the optics, what it looks like. But our report here of Kennedy Njuku and our analysis of him is going to be scathing. It's not going to be positive. And it's based upon what we've seen, what we've analyzed. It's the truth. But if you're a Kennedy Njuku sympathizer, if you're a Kennedy Njuku teammate, coach, whatever, feel free to fast forward the video at this time because I am not going to talk highly of Kennedy Njuku in a second. Okay. Now that I got the public service announcement out the way, Devin Clark by round two knockout is the prediction. And here's what I have to say about Ninjuku. Like his story, 
Uh, I think he came back from college, went to go take care of his mother. His mother was very ill. A family, good son, has Nigerian roots, uh, seems very humble, respectful, tons of qualities you describe in a person that's got good character. Comes off to me as a guy who seems to be, you know, the quiet person, but maybe educated, smart. When he says something, it's with validity. It's It's got some substance to it. He's not just a big mouth talking all the time. So I like those. My stepfather was a lot like that. My, I love my stepfather. Rest in peace. My stepfather was a, a very humble man. And I'm not so humble, but he was very humble. And I always appreciate the quality about him. So Kennedy appears that way. We absolutely cannot trust Ninjuku from a betting perspective. He has a propensity to just space out. Fighter IQ wouldn't even like cut it. I'm talking like at some point in the fight, he gets into his astronaut suit and goes space flying. And you're wondering like, what is he doing? The fight that comes to mind the most is the Carl or Ulberg fight. It was about two years ago. And before you say, oh, it's two years ago. Even after that fight, he has done some stuff that's like, I can't believe what he's doing. I don't get it. I just, it doesn't make sense. Now, in the fight against Olberg two years ago, he displayed some of the lowest fighter IQ I think you could ever give an example of. I mean, real bad. And there were moments in that fight where you were just wondering, because again, I'm going to compare, for example, the fight we talked about a few moments ago. We talked about the... The Marina Rodriguez fight, when she fought Amanda Lemos, go look at how Jason Herzog stopped that fight, and then go look at round number one of that fight with her, with Carlos Olberg and Kenny Njuku, and explain to me like where, 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 where the goalposts are just shifting left and right. There's no objective rules for referees. It's all just arbitrary. I'll take a point over here. I won't take a point. I'm going to warn you for a point. Um, I'm going to stop the fight for that. Uh, I won't stop the fight for this. And Ninjuku balls up and doesn't return a punch. There must have been at least, I'm not kidding, like 40 to 50 strikes from Carlos Olberg, most of them on the gloves. While Kennedy is just like this, like just, just balled up. Not getting hurt, just balled up. And I'm like, even if you're not hurt, dude, you're going to lose the fight by TKO. The ref is going to stop it. For some reason, though, <laughs> they don't stop it. They just let it keep going. And Ninjuku just keeps doing this, blocking. And Olberg just punches himself out. End of round one, you see Olberg's getting tired. Round two comes out. Ninjuku turns it on, gets the finish. On paper, looks great. One of the dumbest things I've ever seen a fighter do. There's no other way. To, it is absolutely stupid. It was a horrible idea. Even though he won the fight, he literally, another referee would have called it. He was not returning any fire, was balled up. And I, to this day, I don't get the game plan. Because even if the game plan was, oh, let him punch himself out. Dude, another ref would have called it. You just got lucky that time the ref didn't call. So I find this to be something I can't get out of my head. I can't. I can't. I'm, I'm being biased here. I'm biased. I like Devin Clark. I've interviewed him. And I'm very biased against betting on Njuku. We have faded him in every fight after that. And since then, he's gone two and three. So um, the fading of him has been lucrative. It's like fade or pass with this guy. That, that's our philosophy. Like they have dog or pass for Ninjukoi. It's like we fade him 
or we pass. If he fights someone who's like terrible, he's probably gonna win, then we'll just pass. If he fights a guy like Devin Clark, we're gonna fade him here and play against him. That's our like, that's written in stone here somewhere in our philosophy. Fading Ninjuku against almost anyone. And I hope our thought process doesn't rear its ugly head. I just wanna see a good fight, both guys fighting, no, no dumbness. But mark my words, if Ninjuku does something in this fight, loses a point, does something stupid, <laughs> what Forrest Gump said, stupid is what stupid does. I don't know. I mean, he has that in his, <laughs> it's in his loins, right? Now, all that said, Ninjuku is a phenomenal athlete. Very tall, very long. The front leg kick is, is that, that teep kick, brutal. He'll have an eight inch reach advantage here and a five inch height advantage. He'll be much taller, much longer at range. He can like, he can kick Devin Clark across the cage and Devin Clark will be like trying to hit him. Like, I can't get to you, man. So the range, the height will be strong in the side of Ninjuku and that front kick, the front T pick. I love it now. Okay. At times, this guy looks amazing. <laughs> You'll find film of Ninjuku looking absolutely incredible. And then there's times looking at him, you're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you making these fights close? He's the like example of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but as a mixed martial artist. Like he lost to Nicole uh, Negamorano via a split decision at minus 130. Again, I, I don't know how he lost his fight. He could have won the fight. He could have won the fight, but he found a way to lose the fight. <laughs> he got knocked out in round one against Jung. At plus 105 on the money line. Listen, listen to this now. Listen to this. Because he's so inconsistent, right? He's so inconsistent. And we can't figure him out. Our philosophy, again, is what? It's fader pass. Here's the book. Here's the books now trying to judge this guy. I'm trying to evaluate him. The books gave him plus 105 money against Jung, which is pretty. Pick him. Pick him, right? I knocked out in round number one. Knocked out in round number one. As a pick him. So that line was off, right? That was off. Then he was a plus 190 underdog when he defeated Carlos Olberg. That line was off because number one, number one, he wins the fight. And had he just fought regular in round number one, he could have won the fight normally. He decides to like try to lose the fight round number one, but then come back and win the fight. I mean, oh Lord, Lord. In, in summary, if you look at his his past few fights and the, and the, and the lines that come out in the books, they can't get him right either. <laughs> He's so inconsistent. They can't price him accordingly. And so I'm not going to rack my brain trying to figure out how to bet when he's fighting for him to win. Hell no. Absolute tomfoolery. Now, if you're taking him to win this week and he wins, bon appetit. I'm happy for you. I am. But this is a, a a hill you don't want to die on. I'm telling you, you do not want to die on the Kennedy Ninjuku hill. And if I ever meet him, I would tell him all this along with saying, you are an impressive fighter. You do have good kickboxing. Uh, you are a specimen and seem like a very nice man. But Lord have mercy. In between the rounds sometimes, and what's go I don't know what happens here. I, something goes down where he decides to make fights closer, uh, allow things to creep in that shouldn't creep in, and in some cases, he just kind of gave up <laughs> and fight. Okay. I put enough on Mr. Kenny Njuku. Let me talk about the brown bear, Devin Clark. 
by the way, story for you guys, Brown Bear, I'll put the link for his interview with us in the newsletter. So again, subscribe to our newsletter, more access, right? He got the name Brown Bear because in high school, right? He was wrestling in high school, right? He was like the only black kid. That's what he said in the interview, like the only black kid in the whole school. And so they called him Brown Guy, right? like Brown Guy, like Brown Dude, what's up, Brown Guy? And even though it sounds like racial, he described it as more of an endearing quality. And I guess I would compare it to, you know, I grew up in the, I grew up in Brooklyn, you know, you call somebody a nigga, it's, it's, it's endearing. It's not, you know, I would never, I mean, imagine I'm, I'm Hispanic uh, approaching someone who's black and saying, yo, what's up, motherfucker? You're a nigga. Like I, no, I would never, you know, I would never use that terminology in that reference, but Back to my point, people called him brown guy, like his friends, his, you know, people in school. And it wasn't meant to be like, oh, you know, it wasn't meant to be like, oh, you're to ostracize him and make him feel like he's inferior. No, they changed it to brown bear from brown guy because he wrestled very well, was aggressive and he was a good wrestler in high school. And so he's adopted this, this, this moniker brown bear, but interesting how the story of how that name came about and, um, Great guy, man. He, you know, he's, um, he loves his Midwestern roots. He's from Dakota. He's, he's a light skinned black man. He's got the, um, the, the, the Drake, Steph Curry, you know, light skinned black guy, Gene, but he wears a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. And I, I love that. I'm all about variety. I, I love, I love the variety of life. You know, I, I did four years in Nebraska in college myself, university of Nebraska. And I thought country music sounded terrible when I first got out there. And then I, Ended up liking Brooks and Dunn and like Garth Brooks and 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 different country singers. I bought myself a pair of cowboy boots. I still got them. I had a cowboy hat, which years ago I don't know what happened to the cowboy hat. But I embraced the culture. And so Devin Brown Bear Clark is, you know, a, a light-skinned black man, middle west of this country, has embraced everything, has made the best of his situation, and he really is proud of his Midwestern roots. He's he's a hunter and he's outdoorsman, drives a pickup truck, just he's an all-American dude, a guy who's easy to root for. Back to the breakdown here. So he's one of the most active light heavyweights on the roster. He fought twice last year. This will be a second fight this year. He's an especially nice guy, by the way. Again, I talked to him a few times and I can't say enough. He's so respectful. He's so nice. He's got such a kind personality. Such an easy guy to root for. He's a balanced fighter. Bonafide knockout power, especially good wrestling for a guy in this weight class, has 2.36 takedowns per fight. And what he lacks in striking volume, he makes up for with power punching and good defense. Meaning like, for example, he's averaging a low volume in striking, but he's got a positive striking ratio, which means he still has good defense, not getting pieced up, right? He recently moved over to Elevation Fight Team in Colorado, and that's been a good move for him. Now, I grant that he lost a few fights here, I get it, but his cardio has improved based upon his dialogue with me and other people. He feels better there. His cardio has improved. He's got a better gas tank. And so... I think, again, we're seeing the best version of him now. He's evolving into the best version of Devin Clark. Now, a kickboxing-style fight will play right to the hands of Ninjukoi, so he cannot stay at distance with Ninjukoi and, and try to out-strike out him, out-kick him. I mean, Kennedy has, you know, a lot of reach here, right? A lot of height. We're expecting Clark to close distance to neutralize that height advantage, right? Get him up against the fence, crowd him, and then rip the fight to the ground at some point. That would be the path of victory for Devin Clark. Now, can Devin stay with him on the feet and crack him at some point? 
yeah, like some Mike Tyson shit, like dip your head, getting close and like, you know, but I, again, I, I really feel like at range, it plays right into the strengths of Ninjuku. It would make more sense if Devin Clark could at the least mix in some wrestling early, take to the ground. Uh, you know, that would be, a, he's a tall guy, Ninjuku, get him down to the ground and work from there. The bets we like for this fight are going to be this. The fight going over one and a half rounds. Fight starts round number two. And Clark into the distance. Now, the over one and a half is not priced yet. The fight starting round number two is not priced yet either. But Clark into the dis inside the distance, excuse me, is plus 450. That's our breakdown, guys. Look, if you like Kennedy Njuku, you're betting on him. You don't agree with my analysis. I understand. I'm just telling based upon the optics here. Okay, based upon what you see, <laughs> A lot of questionable decisions, and I do like Devin Clark in this fight here as a plus 165 dog on the money line. It's a good spot, guys. Um, take it or leave it. Devin Clark by round two knockout. That's our pick, guys. Let's move on. And we're up to the last fight in the prelim card. It's going to feature Drew Dober versus Matt Frivola in a lightweight battle. Before we get to the details on this breakdown, we'll give you our pick. We like Drew Dober by round one knockout. That's plus 230. That's our official prediction. Again, Drew Dober, round one knockout at plus 230, a lightweight affair at 155 pounds. For Mr. Dober, he's 26 and 11 overall, no draws, three to his last five fights out of Denver, Colorado, 34 years old, 5'8 in height with a 70 inch reach. As for Mr. Matt Steamrolla Frivola, that rolls with the tongue, right? 10, 3 and 1 overall, three to his last five fights. He's a dog here out of Tampa, Florida, trains out of Gracie, Tampa South. 32 years old and 10 months, so roughly the same age as Drew Dober, about a year or so off, a year and a half, whatever. He's also 5'9", well, 5'9", in comparison to 5'8 for Dober, so one inch taller with a 71 inch reach, so Matt is the slightly taller and longer fighter of the two. All right, as for our breakdown, here we go. Dober is one of the light, excuse me, he's one of the best lightweight finishers in the world. Look at this guy's numbers. He has six straight wins via finish. And has finishes in eight of his last 10 wins. I mean, who in the world that's at PFL or Bellator or UFC, any top promotion could tell you they've had finishes in eight of the last 10 wins. So this guy has a high finish rate, has squared off with some of the best in the world, the Makachevs and whatever else. So, you know, straight the schedule through the roof, right? High finishing ability. He doesn't waste any time turning the heat up either. So if you fight this guy, it goes from like, hey, how are you? Touch gloves, zero to 60 immediately. He puts on the heat, the pressure, and of course, the fight with Terrence McKinney was, oh man, it was awesome. He got he got rocked. McKinney had him hurt. McKinney thought he could finish him. And then of course, you know, Drew Dober's never been knocked out. So it's like, you know, he can't get it done. Anyway, seven of his last eight finishes occurred within two rounds. So again, gets it done fast. And five of them occurred in round number one. Drew Dober, right, by round one knockout, at plus 230, that's a spot here, guys. We've seen Matt Favola get, we'll talk about that in a second. We've seen he got starts before. But again, for, for Dober, just in his own right, he has five first-round finishes. Dober fights like a wild man. I mean, he fights like if he doesn't knock this guy out, that he's going to lose his contract, his house, his money, you know, and tons of confidence in his chin. I mean, maybe too much confidence, but then again, he's never been finished before. So like he's he's got this confidence that comes from a standpoint of like, I've been cracked, never been knocked out. He does not mind staying and trading with you. He doesn't mind to eat four or five punches to land just one big one on you. He's a scary guy to fight. Now, if Frivola were to stand and try to trade with him because he's like 
fuck it, dude. I'm going to stand up. Mistake. That'd be a fatal mistake because we know Dober gets cracked, right? But he can handle it. And if Favola decides to stand and trade with him, Dober's going to knock him out like Sergey Pavlovich style, like just brutal, tied to Avasa, Curtis Blades, like running through people. I can see it happening here too. Now, in addition to Dober's high finish rate, he's faced elite competition, like the likes of, for example, Makachev, Dariush, Olivier Aubameyang, who's defending PFL champion, right? This will be his 50th total fight too, by the way. Yeah, for Dober. His 50th total mixed martial arts fight. He has one no contest, which doesn't show up there for some people, but that's a fight. And he had like three or four uh, amateur bouts. You combine them all, 49 total fights already. This will be his 50th. And during that entire time, guess what? He's never been knocked out. <laughs> never been knocked out. Now, that wouldn't be a big deal if he was like a wrestler, grappler. No, this dude swings. <laughs> he wants to fight with you. He fights kind of like Julian Arosa, but he don't get knocked out like Julian Arosa. So it's incredible. 50 fights now he's coming upon. Never been knocked out. It's no wonder he's got so much confidence in his chin, right? If he does have an Achilles heel, Dober that is, it's submission defense though. That's, we can't all be perfect, right? He's been submitted four times. <laughs> he doesn't do much offensive wrestling himself, but he does have good wrestling in his background. I think he was a state champion in wrestling. I could be wrong. He's built like a wrestler. But if you take him down, he'll get back up. He'll defend you. Um, now, if you're an elite grappler, elite submission guy like Islam Makachev, yeah, that's that's his Achilles heel. You know, it's if, if Frivola wants to have a chance to win, he's got to wrestle Dober. Take down Dober, right? Now, as for Favola, we're talking about Favola right now. His hands are full with Dober. <laughs> you know, like, we would be kind of shocked, like, borderline, like, shocked here if Favola were to pull off a win here. Matter of fact, if he just survives the three rounds with this Tasmanian devil, Dober is an absolute wild man. <laughs> He's a wild man. If you haven't seen him fight before, this is, this is box office. This guy is box office. And a matter of fact, the main fight on the prelim card that's fine. I guess there's some level of clout in that. Put this guy on the main. Don't, don't ever put him anything other than the main card. Put him on the main card. This guy is such box office. I love watching him fight. You know, for Favolo though, if you could take down Dober and control him, that's his path to victory on the scorecards, right? And for Favolo, averages two point three nine takedowns per fight. He's got it in his arsenal. He needs to execute a smart game plan. Get the fight down. Slow down this wild man. And give himself a shot. Now keep in mind, right? Keep in mind. Favola has a negative striking ratio. <laughs> when I saw this, I was like, oh no. Oh no. We know the chin is a question mark, right? He got knocked out in seven seconds by Terrence McKinney. Also been finished before, right? So we know it takes one punch to knock him out. Not two or three, not a long not 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 five, ten minutes. One punch can sleep a man here. If Favola, who's getting hit, 3.49 times per minute. It's not an, a crazy amount of times, but he's getting hit almost four times per minute. Per minute, I'm sorry. If he lets Dober hit him four times per minute, Aladdin, this fight would not last long. No. This fight will be over within the round. <laughs> and Dober will mollywop his ass. So these numbers tell a story. If he cannot neutralized over 
get the fight down for long periods of time. He will have to stand and trade with Dober, and Dober has no patience. He does not work by the hour. He works by the fight. He likes he likes bonuses. He likes uh, fight of the night bonuses, and he will look for it, and he knows he has himself a victim in front of him. So I expect Dober comes out crazy. <laughs> Absolutely crazy, man. The betting spots I'd like to hear for this fight. The betting spots. Here we are. Under one and a half rounds at plus 110. Book it. Fight doesn't start round three and Dober by knockout. Now, round three, that round three prop, not available yet. And Dober by knockout is minus 150. Oh, so the book's telling you now. They know it too. Anytime he knocks him out, one, minus 150. If you want to make a play on Frivola, though, here we go. If you're going to bet on Frivola, there's two spots would make a ton of sense. Here we go. By decision plus four seventy five. So he like he somehow survives fifteen minutes, wrestles, grapples, slows down, frustrates my man over here, Dober. Plus four seventy five, and then Dober by submission. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dober. Um, Frivola by submission at plus nine hundred. Frivola does have some submission wins. He's got three actually in his career. Not a lot, but three. And we know Dober has a problem defending submission. So if you're going to play Frivola again, I think that decision prop is nice. Submission prop is nice. That would be the play. But for us, we're going to go with Drew Dober by round one knockout plus 230. That's our pick, guys. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are on to the main card. And I'm going to be doing a full run through the main card with no edits. If I have to pull up some notes here or something like that, forgive me. Just due to time constraints this week with so much going on, I don't have time to do one foot at a time, clip it, and intros and stuff. So I apologize. Lo siento. First fight in the main card, Mr. Cron Gracie. Yes, that kind of Gracie as in one of the lineage Gracie family members versus Charles Jordan. That's my best attempt at saying Jordan in a French accent. Jordan, I guess. I'll do the best I can there. But Charles Air Jordan, he's been around now for a minute. We know him as a UFC fighter. Cron Gracie, we know the name, but hasn't fought in a very long time, which we'll talk about. I'll give you my pick right now before we get into this breakdown. We like Cron Gracie to win this fight by a round two submission that's currently sitting at plus 1,000. Wow. Jordan is the favorite at minus 195. You got Cron Gracie at plus 165 on the money line. Over the details, these two guys. Gracie is 5-1 on the mixed martial arts scene. A lot of grappling experience, right? Tons of of grappling experience, but hasn't fought now in about like, you know, four years or so. It's been a long time. He's 5-1 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, out of Brazil, of course, now based out of, I believe, Montana, right? So he was in Los Angeles. He was with the the whole crew of the um, Nate Diaz, that whole clan, but then picked up and moved his gym and his whole, uh, I guess, his business over to Montana. Like, just, you know, live in the uh, outdoors life, the Yellowstone kind of life. Anyway, 34 years old, 5'9 in height with a 70-inch reach, and his gym is Gracie Humiata. As for Charles A. Jourdain, 13-6 and six and 1 overall, 2-3 in his last 5 fights. They've all been in the UFC, though. So, at the very least, you see those that red number. It's like, at least he's been fighting at the top level, right? Out of Quebec, Canada, 27 years old, a little bit younger, right? About 7 years younger. 5'9, same height with a 69-inch reach. Equivalent height and reach just about for both guys. And for Charles Jordan, he's out of Academia Pro Star MMA. I apologize for the 
noises in the background. Those are notifications on my computer. And uh, right now, again, I don't have any time for editing. Let me jump into the my notes here. Cron Gracie by Round 2 Submission. Uh, that's my selection here. Gracie, of course, is a descendant of the famed Gracie family from Brazil. And if you look at his record and what he does and his jiu-jitsu and his grappling, he lives up to the family name. All five of his professional mixed martial arts wins have been by, yes, some version of a submission. Okay. His most notable win in the UFC was over Alex Caceres. That was in 2019, his last fight. And that was, yeah, four years ago, long time. Now, Gracie has done a ton of grappling. So when you see his record, you see that five and one record, you're thinking, man, no experience, right? What he's been doing. He has been grappling. Now, he hasn't done mixed martial arts in a long time. I don't want to make an excuse for him, but the point is he has done other stuff besides, you know, the mixed martial arts stuff. Now, our biggest red flag for him is, again, four years not fighting. Last time he fought, he was like 30 years old. I mean, it, it's it's a big difference. Has he evolved mentally? Probably. You know, you get older, you get smarter, that kind of thing. But at the same time, has he just gotten older uh, to the point where it's like, Hey man, at some point you're you're gonna it's gonna start hurting you more. It's gonna be harder training camps, harder weight cuts, the whole nine. Uh, we don't get younger, we don't get faster. And so, uh, I'm thinking the layoff won't hurt him a ton. It just couldn't have helped him again athletically, mentally. Yes, um, for him, for Mr. Gracie, the key to victory is gonna be taking down Jordan, controlling position, going after submissions, getting his back. For Gracie, if he's on your back. You might as well just tap right away. Just just make it easy for everyone. Just just tap right away because he's going to submit you. And I believe that's going to be his, his at least motivation. Get the back of Jordan. Try to submit him. Now, as for Charles Air Jordan, exciting Canadian prospect. No, not prospect. No, exciting Canadian fighter now. He's no longer a prospect. He's kind of established. High finish rate. 12 of his 13 wins have been via finish. So he's looking to end his opponent. And if you've watched him fight before, just put my notes aside here. He's a wild man. <laughs> he's a damn wild man. And I respect it. He's got a bit of that Julian Rosa in him. Like I might lose. I might win either way. I'm going to test fate and I'm swinging for the fences. Who's coming with me? Like the Jerry Maguire shit. Who's coming with me? I respect it. It's exciting. It's probably not the smartest way to fight, but Hey man, he's the kind of guy where the UFC, like don't ever cut this guy. Charles Air Jordan to the day he stops fighting will fight like this, and I kind of like it. So, back to my notes here. He has a propensity to get into brawls, right? Jordan has faced quality opponents Shane Burgos, Nathaniel Wood, uh, Venata, Ewell. I just call him Ewell. Ewell. Andre Ewell. <laughs> um, and I just mentioned Julian Arosa, right? And that fight, of course, didn't go to the distance because Arosa plus Jordan equals not going to the distance, right? Or Arosa versus anyone these days, we're not going to the distance. Anyway, back to this breakdown. For Jordan, he maintains good volume, 5.84 strikes per minute, and solid jiu-jitsu. His striking defense could be better. He absorbs almost 5, well, 4.56 strikes per minute, so not almost 5, more like almost 4.5. Still quite a bit, right? He did submit Julian Arosa two years ago. Kron is a more complicated... Jiu-Jitsu practitioner than let's say Arosa. He's um he's accomplished. He knows what he's doing. And I would say this: if Charles Jordan gets to the ground or grapples with the Gracie man here, I'm not saying Jordan won't be he won't be a fish out of water. 
He he won't be that. But man, I, I wouldn't want to fight against that guy like that. <laughs> you know, like if you had your options, make it a Muay Thai fight, make it a traditional boxing match. I mean, anything but doing grappling with a Gracie. And so from that standpoint, even though Jordan has some good grappling, it's don't do it, dude. Don't, don't, don't do it yourself. Don't go there, um, which is easier said than done. And so I guess what I'm saying is this long story short, if it goes to a grappling match, Jordan is not a complete, you know, imbecile. He knows what he's doing there. So could he survive the last minute of a round defending submission attempts? Uh, will he show some, I mean, Jordan by the submission, play that prop. We saw it last week with, with Stephanie Egger. Everyone thought Egger would submit uh, what's her name? <laughs> the girl who came over from Russia and missed weight. Everyone thought that Edgar would submit her. And what do you have? Edgar gets submitted. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just I'm just kind of playing with that. But the bottom line is this: for Kron, uh, he needs back control, and for Jordan, do not let it happen. Right? The betting spots like the most for this fight are going to be the fight going under two and a half rounds at minus two hundred. Fight doesn't go to distance at minus 250. And Kron by submission at plus 215. So again, the spots we like the most for this fight are going to be the under 2.5 and minus 200. Fight not going to the cards at minus 250. And Kron by submission at plus 215. He's currently the dog at plus 165. I would say this. If you're betting on Kron, does he win a striking match and and win on the scorecards that way? I just, you know... He's never won a mixed martial arts fight by decision. He's coming off of a long layoff. I think he's going to try to submit Jordan. And I think over three rounds, either he does that or he loses the points stuff because of the striking. And so I guess one more thing. Could he have enough position control over Jordan for three rounds to win? I guess. I don't know. I just it seems like a lot to ask there, right? Okay, let's move on to the next fight in the card, and that's going to be Mavzar Ivalev versus Diego Lopez. This breakdown is going to be very modified. I told myself beforehand I wouldn't even actually do this breakdown because the fight was a last-minute replacement. But let me tell you what I know, and then you know, take from it what you will. You got Mavzar Ivalev, the Russian, undefeated, very impressive record-wise, 16-0 versus Diego Lopez coming in. And by the way, it's Lopez, L-O-P-E-S, which you don't usually see Lopez spelled that way. But anyway, he's a Brazilian fighter. Decent fighter from the standpoint he's had experience. Record's not so bad, right? 26 fights, 21 and 5. Was on Contender Series, right? If I'm not wrong. Was he on Contender Series last year or so? Let me double check here. And here's where, again, I apologize. I'm usually more prepared for this. But this fight, I just, late replacement, I was like, no. Yeah, so Contender Series... Two years ago, so not last year, two years ago, he lost against Joanna Sembrito by a technical unanimous decision, and I don't recall what happened there. Um, I will say this, Joanna Sembrito is a legit mixed martial arts fighter in the UFC. It's not the worst loss to have in your record. Now, from there, he fought in Fury FC, uh, did some jiu-jitsu stuff with Combat Jiu-Jitsu World. His last fight was in Lux Fight League. Won that fight by a round two knockout. Gets this call up last minute. And I just, it's not the way to make your debut. You know, now Marcus McGee could tell you otherwise last week. <laughs> also, the 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 other person came in 
uh, replacement too. I forgot. But there were two replacement fighters last week who both came in and both got the job done. I would just say, um, who knows? But having watched Roman Lopez, he's pretty good everywhere, like pretty good. I just don't know how... Here, here's how it happens. He would have to crack Evilov, right? And then, you know, in the process of three rounds, do do more volume, maybe a takedown or two, but that's not really a lot. If Diego Lopez is not really a takedown guy, he's more of a, like, I'm going to strike with you and fight with you on the feet. And Evilev's not great there, but Evilev's takedown offense is good enough, his wrestling. So I think you have to bet Evilev if you're betting with your just, like, you know, just normal check marks, right? He's the one who has some more things under his you know belt he's also undefeated um okay now all that said here's let me take a sip of wine here all that said evilev's overrated okay i'll say it. he's overrated the record distorts what you you can kind of you know all right so how many people watch mixed martial arts go to tapology see the record and just like oh this guy, I'm going to take him. That's probably like 70 to 80% of the fans that, that follow mixed martial arts. They're not going to go pull up his tapology, who'd he fight, then watch those fights, see him get cracked, see him be very average at times. A lot of guys have gone 10, 15, 11, and, and gals <laughs> undefeated. We're seeing the chinks in the armor with him. You've seen it recently. Like, it, you know, the, the signs are there. Like, Shevchenko, when she lost against Grasso, and I still am, like, beating myself about this, the signs were there in the fights leading up to it that she was losing her edge. Not that she was getting worse. Not that she was getting... Look, at some point, you lose your edge. This guy, Mazar Ivalev, long story short, he probably wins. I'm picking him to win. By does he have finishing ability just offhand? Let me just double check here. No, no, no. Last few fights, decision, decision, splitty, decision, decision, decision. You know, last finish was 2018. That was prior to the UFC. Then he, you know, it's funny. Funny, like two fights before the UFC, rear naked choke, and a knockout. Right? Okay. Then comes the UFC, one, two, three, four, five straight decisions, including a split. He's due, and I guess, you know, Lopez comes in here thinking he can be the guy, but I just haven't seen enough from Lopez to say it's worth the money. I'm going to take Mavzar Ivalev to win the fight by decision. Uh, that's an obvious one right there. And, uh, yeah. Let's move on. Again, that, that fight didn't really touch it too much. Didn't get a chance to do like the whole notes and whatnot like I like to do. Uh, but we're going to move on past that fight and go on to Jessica Andraj at minus 200 versus Ginan Yan at plus 170. A good fight, guys. We're taking Yan by split decision at plus 900. If you followed us before, you know we are a bit obsessed with the split props. And I, I, I can tell you with a lot of faith here that I think this fight car will relinquish or produce um, a lot of props that will be in the split variety. I think the main event, coming event, this fight, prelim car, we talked about some fights earlier. I think the, the female fight, Marina 
Rodriguez versus Virna Jandrova. That's that fight got split all, all over it. I also think Rafael Estevan versus Zagas Magulov could also go to split. So on our target board, we've got one, two, three, four, five fights in this card that we think could be split worthy, and this is one of them. Okay, all that. So let's go to the details in these two fighters, and I'm trying to pull up my notes here. <laughs> I apologize again. Usually I edit this stuff out, right, and give you guys a clean video, but uh, this week it's just been tough. And then tonight I have this pre-fight show, and oh boy. Anyway, so Andrade, 24-10 and 0 overall. Pretty good experience, right? 34 total fights. Three and two in her last five fights. She's the favorite here at minus 200 out of Brazil. 31 years old. That is the biggest surprise here, right? She's, she's fought everyone, been around, held the strap at some point. You see her age, you're like, you're just only 31. It's like, wow. Um, I wonder if damage will matter, though. If, if the buildup of the career, like, you know, they kind of say like dogs age in seven year cycles compared to, you know, humans, she's fighting. I mean, is she 31 years old in like life years or like maybe like 51 in, in like body years because of the beating? I don't know. She never got really hurt very much, but I'm just saying like she's 31. It's surprising, right? Five foot one in height for Jessica. Very, very small in stature. 62 inch reach out of Piranha Valtudo. Great gym in Brazil. And now as for Jan, the Chinese fighter, I'm going to talk about this in a second. I have some narrative for you guys, a little, little sub, like put my tinfoil hat on for you guys. As for Jan, 16-3-0 overall, 16-3-0. Never say O. I just did that. It's not an O. It's a zero. O is a letter and zero is a number. Okay. 16-3-0 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights out of Sacramento, California, currently via China, 33 years old in 10 months, about to be 34. Uh, Asian people don't age, right? Like, you know, you look at her profile picture, like, they don't have wrinkles. Like, they just don't age. Look very young for life. Young for life. 33 years old in 10 months, 5 foot 5 in height, so 4 inches taller than Andrade, but I just, I don't think that's accurate. I think she'll be taller, of course. I just don't know if she's four inches taller. And then a one-inch reach advantage for Jan. She's out of Team Alpha Male. Okay, here's my written breakdown. The newsletter breakdown coming out tomorrow morning. We like Jan by split decision. That's plus nine hundo. For Andrade, she's one of the most recognizable female fighters in the UFC. She's fought the best of the best over the last decade. Wally Zhang. Rose Namajunas, Valentina Shevchenko, Joanna, that last name for Joanna, I never could quite get it. It's the one with the J-E-D-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-
You're talking about a current Hall of Famer, only 31 years old, probably has a good three or four years left in her where she could be a viable gatekeeper, a valuable roster spot for the UFC. I'll talk more about that in a second here. But she's not done yet, and she's not done winning in the UFC. I think she's done having a, a title contention. I think she's done having the chance to actually hold the belt. And that's no disrespect, but I just think because of where we're at in history and, and where she's at, I'll talk more about that in a second here. But the pinnacle of her career, 2019, she picks up Rose Namunis in a fight and then slams her through the floor, like unconscious. Rose is like, like, yeah. And now Rose, good fighter. She slammed the shit out of her and she's done it before. She picked up, I'm talking about Jessica, that is Jessica Andrade. She picked up uh, um, Tisha Torres, same thing. Fwapita. Slammed her ass in the ground. So we know she can do that. Now against Yanan, Yan may not be as easy because she, you know, a lower center of gravity, a decent grappler, good enough wrestler. Tisha Torres, if you imagine her frame, you know, easier to pick up and slam down. Rose Namajunas, same thing, kind of a, a leaner version of this division, whereas Jan is a little more stocky, stockier legs, and so is Andrade, right? Anyway, so she got her title in 2019, strawweight battle, strawweight title, right? Okay, now you fast forward to current time, current day and age, 2023, four years later, her last fight coming off of a submission loss to Aaron Blanchfield. And a fight where she took that fight on seven days notice, seven days notice, not the best version of Andrade, not a full camp, did the promotion a favor, also got submitted, right? <laughs> now, prior to that, in January, in the Brazilian car, she put a beating on Lauren Murphy. Like, she beat the hell out of Lauren Murphy. If you guys want to see back, watch that fight. Could have been stopped. Um, this will be Andrade's third fight this year. And I thought to myself, is she an active fighter? And I looked at Tapaj and I thought to myself, how did I forget how active Andrade is? She fights two, three times a year religiously, okay? She once fought seven times in one year. <laughs> Go back to 2012. She fought seven times in one year, and one of those fights was against Jennifer Maya. It wasn't like she was just fighting a bunch of clowns. So through COVID, fighting two, three times a year. This year, third fight, we're like halfway through the year, you can bet you'll see her on a fight night card at some point the rest of the year. Someone bails and she'll be ready. Amazing. At 31, a former title holder to be so active and ready. If you're the UFC, you never let her go. <laughs> like she's Hall of Fame material already. So 24 and 10 record, quality fighters, the better experience here. That does matter a lot. But she is 31, and you wonder by now, is is her better days behind her? Has she peaked, right? Active as all heck, cashing checks. I just wonder now, is she passing the torch on? Was the Aaron Blanchfield fight a version of passing the torch? Like, the fighters are evolving, right? They're getting better. Blanchfield, who's getting, you know, getting better herself. She's young, right? Andrade, in her prime, and then maybe Blanchfield two years ago or something like that. I think Andrade wins the fight, but you're seeing that evolution, right? So I'm just saying here in the analysis, you're seeing a fighter who's dipping. And that to me is why I'm also going against 
Andrade here is not because I think she's not a good fighter or she's not been a good fighter. I think that the momentum is going down. And for her right now against a fighter that I think has enough to make it close, that could be enough to win the fight, just keeping it close, right? So all that said here, there's also size limitations, right? Andrade will be shorter by four inches or so, three inches or so. And she's always smaller. She's used to that. But it doesn't help her. It doesn't help her. And in grappling with a fighter who can actually grapple a bit, it, it makes it even more complicated. So for Jan, all right. Okay, let's talk about Jan here. Decision win over Mackenzie during her last fight. Lost her prior fight by split decision to Marina Rodriguez. And then proceeded that fight with a TKO loss to Carla Esparza. So it's like half glass full, half glass empty, right? The Dern win is super awesome. But prior to that, you know, she got shaved, right? Now, what version of her shows up on Saturday? What version of Jan shows up? Is it going to be the, you know, leg kicker? Uh, or the person who gets taken down and crucifixed by Esparza, right? Against Dern, she was improved. She looked better. She looked like a fighter that actually did make improvements. She was confident. Lower leg kicks are her thing. She got really short arms, like super short arms. Matter of fact, her arm length is about the same size as her opponent here, even though she's about four inches taller. Leg kicks alone, by the way, I want to emphasize this, underline this point here. Leg kicks alone could possibly win her this fight. Close fight, goes to the cards. Not sure. Some redness on her opponent's legs. She is committed to leg kicks. Not very hard, but she has enough of it. That could matter. Her last submission, by the way, for Jan was seven years ago. Yeah. Neither fighter actually has submissions anytime recently, which I think matters here. So if you're looking at the submission prop, I don't think it's relevant here. You know, and for Andrade, not a typical submission, like, Brazilian fighter. She's more of an overall brawler, slam you, wrestle you. Andrade is not a submission fighter. Uh, so both fighters here are, you know, lacking submission ability. And a matter of fact, for Andrade, her last submission wasn't just seven years ago. It was 17 fights ago. <laughs> yeah. 17 fights for Andrade, no submissions. It would be surprising for her to su submit here, Jan, right? For, for Jan, I think, again, she has a chance to at least compete on the ground, right? And for Jan, out-wrestling Andrade, that's the way to win this fight. So, let me move for more notes here. All right, so here's what I want to talk about. This is my little um, tinfoil hat moment. But just hear me out. got some numbers for you guys. You know I love numbers over here. The New York metro area, which includes Newark, New Jersey, if you want to look it up on a search engine the new york metro area which is like northern jersey long island parts of like staten island like down almost like so far down the new jersey coastline that that surprised me i'm from new york i i was born in new york i lived there for years but the new york metro area does encompass newark okay all right <laughs> there's almost nine hundred thousand chinese people in the New York metro area. I was like, wow. I mean, it's almost a million. It's more like 875,000, whatever. There's probably another good 25,000 undocumented Chinese up in there. You know what I'm saying? No offense. Bring them all in. I'm all about immigration. Shit. We're all immigrants in some way. Unless you're Native American. <laughs> 
not immigrants. So the New York metro area has about 900,000 Chinese people in it. Now, in comparison, there's about 100,000 Brazilians in the New York metro area. I think that's more, 900, 100,000. So when it comes to home court advantage, you're going to go with the Chinese. All right. Now, we're thinking in the crowd here in Newark, there's going to be a large contingent of red flags, Chinese fans. You're going to hear them. They're going to be there in in packs like wolves, and they'll be cheering on Yan. As the UFC continues to position themselves for a mega fight, a mega fight card in China, it's in the works. They're talking about it like in Beijing, a big to do. They need fighters like Yan to be on that card. Yan would be a shooter on that card even now, even even win or lose. But a winning Yan, a Yan beating Andrade, a, a Yan building up some momentum, that's the better version of Yan. There's a little bit of a subliminal like business, you know, benefit here. So a win for Yan is better for the promotion. It's, it's better for it's better for the Chinese fans. They're gonna love it. It'd be a treat for them. Little Chinatown, New York City coming over to, you know, I just this man. I can see it. I can see it, right? So not to mention this. I finally got my mind wrapped around why the scoring system is the way it is. Why the judging is so arbitrary. Why is it so like we need rules, we need open scoring. UFC's like, never. We'll never do that. How can we fix the fights if we can't have the judges? allowed to manipulate the results and just make bad decisions and just be like, it was a split. It makes so much sense now looking back at my, I mean, almost years of like, why are these crazy splits? I don't understand. And, you know, nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by accident. It's a multi-billion dollar company. We're not messing around with accidents. So, the, the open nature of the scoring system is the perfect, perfect angle here. Close fight, three rounds, yawn by split. Make it dramatic. You got the Chinese fans there on the edge of their seat. Yeah, man. Watch out for the split here, guys. The betting spots like the most of this fight are going to be the over one and a half rounds at minus 300. Love that spot. That's a parlay spot. Minus 300 for this fight going over one and a half rounds. The fight starts round number two, minus 450. Again, another parlay spot. Fight goes the distance, minus 135. Now we're tempting fate because, because uh, we know that Andrade can slam someone to death. <laughs> um, and uh, we've also seen her get finished. So I, I do think there's you know a chance of a finish, but the fight going the distance at minus 135 is... is not a bad spot. Yan by decision at plus 225. Like it. And then both fighters by split is actually the same price. So Andrade by split is plus 900. And uh, Yan by split is plus 900. So plus 900, almost plus 1,000 for either fighter by a split decision. We'll definitely have those on our tip sheet. All right, let's move on here. Co-main event. Bilal Muhammad versus Gilbert Burns. Tell you what, talk about having um, a tinfoil hat. I got one for you guys here too as well. Let me run through the, the details in these two guys here. So for, it's a welterweight bout. 
170 pounders. Bilal's 22 and 3 overall. You got Gilbert at 22 and 5 overall. Our pick to win is going to be Burns by split decision at plus 1100. Here we go to our split nonsense again. I know, I know, I know. But just hear us out here. Burns by split plus 1100. A matter of fact, I'm going to skip all the details on these guys. You guys know that stuff. It's on tap out. Let me get right into my notes here in this fight. I'll read them to you right now. So Gilbert Burns is on fire right now, right? He he's he's hot, right? Third fight in three months, and he fought Shemaev a year ago. That was a war. We learned a lot about both guys in that fight. We learned about Shemaev not being invincible, and Burns showed the world that. We learned Burns got a chin and a half. Right? Our only concern for Burns is that. You're taking fights in short notice. He he retired Masvidal 28 days ago. Uh, you know, when was your recovery time? When was your, uh, let me have a few, a week or so of just eating some shit food and, you know, enjoy my life, enjoy my win, my paycheck, Miami. If he's the kind of guy where he needs none of that and he's totally motivated and he's good, okay. But these turnarounds that are close, the, the people who do this, like Charles Johnson recently, you know, Kevin Holland and Bobby Green, maybe Burns deserves more respect than that because he's been winning and doing well. But it, you know, it just you, you can't you can't uh, overcome like mathematical realities. Your body needs rest and recovery. That is our biggest concern with Burns, and our only concern actually, because we do feel like when it comes to the fighter comparisons, Burns is better than. Bilal in every single category. He's better at wrestling. He's better at striking. He's got a bona fide chin. He's a better submission artist. There's nowhere where we see Bilal being better. Uh, matter of fact, maybe the one spot. Okay, the one spot. Bilal does have good fighter IQ. He, he commentates on fights. Um, he's been in there with some pretty good guys. He knows what he's good at and not good at. He's no dummy. He's also less likely to get into like a scrap or a war, whereas Gilbert will do that. So from a fighter IQ standpoint, like just being smart and cautious, that's maybe the one spot. Like Bilal, here's what he'll do: he'll he'll win rounds one and two, and then and then run in round three. He'll be that guy. Like he'll do that Patrick Sabatini thing. Sabatini years ago, I forgot what a fight was. He had two rounds up on the guy, and then third round just like ran, and it was annoying. But it's like these are the rules. Bilal Muhammad would do that. It would be annoying, but he would definitely be that guy because he knows the rules. He knows the system. He's not trying to win fight of the night. He's not looking for a bonus. He just wants to win his fight, whatever it takes. And if it's boring as heck, he'll do it. And I respect it. But man, Burns has world-class jiu-jitsu. The fight hits the mat. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see what Bilal does. I think his energy early on would be good. His wrestling position would be good. And maybe in rounds four or five, he'll have the cardio advantage, right? And that's where you could probably raise some questions. Again, short camp. But where does Gore Burns train at? He trains at Kill Cliff, man. That's like a world-class facility. They know him. He just retired a legend in Masvidal. He's got the momentum. I think they get him ready. Do we see peak Burns? Like the best of Burns? Couldn't. It's not possible. He fast turnaround. Like he hasn't had a full training camp, but enough to be better than Muhammad. It's our opinion, right? So as for Muhammad, oh boy, this guy is a piece of work. 
If you don't know him, I'll give you some version of his background here without being biased, and I'll do the best I can to tell you that, you know, he's a good fighter, uh, but he's boring as hell. And that's going to matter here. It's going to matter a lot. So Muhammad, long winning streak, eight fights in a row, looking for his ninth win in a row, right? He does one thing and one thing only. I feel like I'm talking like the um, the actor. What's his name? Uh, Will Farrell. One thing and one thing only. You know, <laughs> um, he's a wrestler. That's what he does. A former high school wrestler, college wrestler, a very good wrestler. No question. He knows how to bring people down. Good cardio. He's beaten good guys because of his wrestling. What he beat Vincent Luque, right? I mean, he's got good wrestling. His fighting style is absolutely trash from a standpoint of entertainment. I'm just calling it, it is what it is. It's not trash in terms of like winning. His wrestling is not trash. But if you want to watch a good fight, you're not watching Bilal Muhammad's fights when he wins. It's absolute not entertainment, not box office, not pay-per-view worthy, and absolutely not what Dana White wants, which we'll talk about that more in a second. Okay, so for Bilal, it's position control, holding this guy down, uh, go for half-ass submissions, burn out Mr. Burns, hopefully Burns fatigues in rounds four and five so Bilal can get some ground and pound, pretend like he's actually finishing the fight at some point, and assuming he's got the better cardio, Bilal is, and also assuming he's got better wrestling for Bilal, he could win the fight. Now, okay. We're on Burns to win, right? We talked about this already. Here's our stay in your lane <laughs> comment of the card. Almost like a public service announcement. Stay in your lane. We can all use a reminder at times about staying in our lane. Okay. In the case of Bilal Muhammad, he wasted no time expressing his displeasure about Dana White's decision to give Colby Covington the title shot, right? After that whole... Usman and you know Colby weighed in. My man Bilal was one of the first people that ran to like Twitter sphere, whatever, in you know, just out there, just like you know, what's Dana doing? <laughs> regardless of the points that he may have had, regardless of how right Bilal may have been, dude, you never, you never ever, ever ever publicly admonish your boss. You never publicly doubt them, question them put them in check or whatever you're trying to do. It's never, that's never a good idea. I think it was Colby Covington who said that recently. Meanwhile, he obviously did it before himself. But the point is this, we learn, right? Colby's learned. You never go against the boss. If Dana White can let go of the current heavyweight champion of the world in Francis Ngannou and do it like, no sweat off my back, dude. Who's next? And Nganu, still looking for a bag, right? If Dana could do that with Nganu, imagine how fast, how easy, how like nothing it would be for him to extinguish Bilal Muhammad. So there's no way Dana heard the comments from Bilal and was like, oh, I'm glad he said that publicly. I'm glad he's questioning me. He probably heard Muhammad bitching and was like, oh, I got one for him. And in response, Dana says, you know what? I'm going to book you against a guy that we're pushing right now 
who's super hot, who's better than you, Gilbert Burns. And both guys want a title shot, right? So Burns wants one too. And he said before his last, after his last fight, Burns said, I'm not taking one more fight unless it's title fight. No. Well, then Dana said, listen, Burns, hey, I got one for you. I'm going to give you a nice little. And also you're going to fight this bum who's bitching over here, you know, and uh, I got you. I got you in the scorecards. Don't even worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just mess around for five rounds. We got you. Get rid of this guy. I know I sound like I'm like mafia talk now. On a serious note, I think Dana and the UFC did does understand that Gilbert is much better than Bilal. And this would be a way of like cutting all that off. Like Muhammad will be shut down once he loses to Burns. On the flip side, how frustrated <laughs> would Dana be if this dude Bilal wins and then says, I want the winner of Colby and um and uh whatever like it, it would just be like no 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 he doesn't want that he doesn't want that i think that the ufc and dana knows exactly what they're doing here they're giving Bilal a guy that he can't beat their weight their their pressure their weight is behind burns it's obvious to me now burns again taking fights in a short period of time did didn't get any damage from the fight with Miles Vidal. So there's a bit of that. So, but I'll tell you this when it's all said and done, clever move by Mr. Dana White. This guy should never be underestimated. And if you're a fighter in the UFC or outside the UFC, you want to get in the UFC, like, don't make public statements against Dana White. This is making fucking sense. What are you thinking, right? Muhammad's going to learn a valuable lesson. Stay in your lane <laughs> okay so betting special like here for this fight are going to be over one and a half rounds at minus 550 a little chalky but a parlay piece for me starts round three minus 360 burns by decision and will sprinkle the split props on both sides that's your breakdown for Bilal muhammad versus Gilbert burns and we got one more fight guys one more fight main event here we go all jermaine sterling minus 105 henry cejudo minus 115 I'm going to spare you guys the details. You guys all have tapology, the records, and so on and so forth. Let me dive right into the breakdown and wrap things up here. So Henry Cejudo by split decision. That's our pick. Yeah, last three fights, we had split decision picks here for our last three fights. I know. I know. And you know, if we throw enough mud at the wall, some of it will stick, right? So Henry Cejudo by split is plus 900. That's our prediction here. This is one of the most anticipated fights of the year. I mean, you got John Jones. That was a big one, right? But this one, the old man, Henry Cejudo, coming back against Sterling. They got a little bit of history and stuff. So we've got a really a, a swell of excitement on this fight, right? For Cejudo has a special place in combat sport history. Not only did he formally carry two belts at the same time in the UFC, he's the only UFC fighter ever to have a title and also have an Olympic gold medal. In wrestling, of course. So Cejudo is a bit of a legend. Now, he retired 2020 as a champion, didn't lose, goes into coaching, and now has become an elite coach, like coaching some of the best guys on the planet, right? It's surprising to me he's going back to the cage. I don't really fully get it, though I kind of get it. If you played a sport before, you had those moments of nostalgia, you want to test yourself again. But 
the amount of time he's asked to take, taking for now for training and not coaching, I think he looks back later on and says to himself, either I regret this or I'm glad I did it, but I'm going to cut it back off again because you, you can't be a coach and you can't be a father and a husband and, and, and be a fighter too, dude. It, something has to give, right? Something's going to give. And so I think he comes in here, either wins this fight and it's exciting for him, proves a point, then maybe fights once more, once or twice more, but then cuts it off or loses this fight and says, you know what? Won't say it out loud, but like, I want to test myself. I found out like my days are gone behind me. I'm back to the gym. So from that standpoint, a little confused, he's actually taking this fight. Now, all right, here we go. He's returning after three years off, right? Not coming back for a warm-up fight, not a warm-up fight, not a like middle contender, not right to the belt, <laughs> right straight beeline to the belt. The UFC blatantly just skips over all the contenders here and just says, um, it's WWF time, WWE, it's worldwide World wrestling, we're entertainment business, we're owned by a business of entertainment, and so uh, straight title fight. <laughs> Cejudo, Colby Covington's doing this right now. We saw Conor McGregor do it before, he'll probably do it again. And then of course, John Jones. John Jones was out for years, and his first fight back was title fight in a different division. <laughs> so it's like, as fans, we love it. It's like, ugh, manja, manja, bring them all back. Can we have like a, a, a battle royale, bring back Ronda Rousey, like just, just muck it up with WWE stuff. I do kind of like it. I do. I do. I'm admitting it. For the fighters, though, being skipped over, it must be absolute madness. <laughs> they must be like, yo, dude, I've been training for years. And like, you're not even here. And then you just come back and yeah, it's tough. Now, again, Cejudo, a legend, right? I mean, retired as a champion. I guess there's like an underlying, underlying like a rule there. Like for Ngannou, if he came back, he'd get a title shot, right? Ngannou? If he did, he would. If he came back to UFC. So I guess, I guess what's good for the goose is good for the gander. But man, just, man, skipping over contenders, right? Here's some facts for you guys, though. Some things to think about here. So while Cejudo has been coaching the last three years, Sterling went 4-0 in route to a Bantamweight title. Now, we can debate some of those fights, and TJ was hurt, and you know the yawn thing and stuff, but the fact remains, last three years, Cejudo was coaching, and Sterling was winning fights, right? Then again, coaching also can sort of open up a new labyrinth in your brain. You start coaching, you see things in a different perspective. Maybe coaching the last three years for Cejudo allowed him to get very healthy, no nicks and bruises, no broken bones, no fighting one fight after another and like trying to get healthy and like he's fully healthy, he's mature, he's at peace, he's now coaching, he understands it from a different perspective. Those things can all be good. They really, those are all good things actually. Like again, coaching can sort of unlock a new understanding of the sport when you step back and you're not, you're not the fighter anymore, not the athlete, you're the coaching now. So if you think about how cerebral, for example, Cejudo is. He's already a smart guy, smart fighter, detail, right? You add the coaching standpoint, it's like, yeah, you have like super Cejudo. And only 30, like with 36, like he's not super old, right? He means that, not too old, right? From that standpoint, I think there's there's some 
some room there to think this guy could be his sharpest of ever. Now, not sharpest athletically, but just mentally as sharp as he could be. And once again, credentials are just unparalleled. Now, as for Aljamain Sterling, he might be one of the most disliked fighters in the entire UFC. The moment he got hit in the knee, or got hit in the head by the knee by Jan, it just tilted so many fans against him, right? Much of the MMA community thought that he was faking it. He wasn't really hurt. And that became the common thing. Like, oh, he was faking it to get the title. He wasn't actually hurt. He was losing the fight. So if you want to add fuel to the fire there, <laughs> Jan was beating him up. Jan was winning the fight. And then it legally happens. Now for Jan, it's like, dude, why'd you knee him there? <laughs> he was in the middle of the mat. And like, it was like, oh, Jan, what are you doing? We had money on Jan that night. So we were not happy about the result. But we have to acknowledge Stoeing did not knee himself in the face. He got kneed in the face or the head by his opponent, and it was a foul. The claims about Sterling acting and stuff, I don't know, man. I don't know. But since that happened, the roller coaster of misinformation about him has been crazy. And we're here to try to like at least rectify a few things with you guys about who he is and the facts about who he is. I've never interviewed him. I don't know him personally. But the numbers don't lie. Like there's a sector of mixed martial arts fans that will never forgive Aljamain Sterling for getting the title the way he did. They just will, it doesn't matter what I say, what you say, it, it does. He could literally turn into a living day version of Gandhi. He could start walking on water and be, he could be a prophet. He could be Jesus. And they would still say he faked, he faked being hurt against Jan. And I cannot respect him after that. There's that sector of the mixed martial, mixed martial arts world, which, okay. Those fans will go to the grave <laughs> not liking this man because of that. Then there's fans that didn't like him before that happened, right? Then that happened, they were like, oh, hell no. I told you I like that snake. We got that sector of the group, right? And then there's fans that simply cannot read between the lines they just they can't reason like you know they can't you could trick them like brainwash them easily and so that sector has been listening to the opinions of the, the talking heads right of people saying this about sterling and this about sterling and making false claims right and so what ends up happening here blindly a whole group of fans became against him by following blindly misinformation. In some cases, reporters and talking heads regurgitating the same misinformation again and again about him. And I'm so pointed about this because I remember hearing people, journalists, I don't know if it was an ESPN journalist, but journalists, talking heads, podcasters, people cap fights, saying that Sterling was out for almost two years sitting on the belt. And it was like, wow. That's not true. I think it was like 11, 12, or 13 months. It was about a year. And he had a neck surgery in between, not because of the illegal knee. He made it very clear. It was an old injury. It kept getting worse. He was finally a title holder, had more money. Let me get the surgery. And he was out for one year, came back, fought the guy again, and, and beat him again. Yet, during that time, you would hear people say, he'd been holding the belt for two years. He just sitting on it. He didn't want to fight nobody. 
And it was like, yo, man, if you don't like him, just it's okay. It's okay. Just say you don't like him. That's all right. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. That's all right. But making up false narratives to not like him and saying things like he's been out for two years and he's avoiding this guy, like, what are we talking about? Anyone who fights in, in the UFC who's on the roster is is willing to fight somebody. Like, you know, let's not sit here armchair quarterback, Monday morning armchair quarterback, like, you don't want to fight nobody. Like, dude. All of us, <laughs> take a step back. These guys are all fighters. They're willing to do things, guys, guys and gals, that we would never do. Okay, they have the balls, cojones to do things we would never do. So this concept that he sat in the, the belt for a long time and wouldn't fight nobody and got it by a fraudulent measure or whatever, those people who feel that way will never get one over. I'm just saying to you, I'm not even a big Sterling fan. I'm not. I never talked to him before. But this, these false narratives, maybe some people feel about him a certain way because of some other things. I don't know. All right. So Sterling's a solid wrestler. He's obviously good at backpacking, position control. He'll slowly chip away at his opponent, wear them out, frustrate them. He did it to Jan in the second fight. And this fight probably comes down to cardio, right? Cardio and position control wrestling. Does Cejudo come back in here and like turn back the clock, have great cardio, look amazing? It's five rounds. We've seen Sterling get tired before. He'll have a lot of people here, close to New York, the whole nine. I think Sterling could win the fight, of course, right? If he's a fresher fighter, if he has more back control. On the feet, boxing-wise, I think Cejudo's a better boxer. He'll better strikes, he'll hit harder. Need the guys on for finishing, so I think the fight goes way over, like over three and a half, over four and a half, start round four, start round five, the full distance, right? In the event we end up in a close decision, by the way, here's my take. They're going to give it to Cejudo. The business, the business of MMA, right? The business of the business always takes precedent over everything else. My man Cejudo is getting a title shot after being out for years. John Jones and Cejudo, both title holders again. Dare I say, making the UFC great again. Just saying, that would look real good. Maybe put Cejudo and John Jones on one card on like Christmas time from now. I'm just, listen, it sounds so good. And what do you do? What do you do? All the, the hate for Sterling, all that unwarranted like oh he got it by fraudulent standards and he was faking it and he you know the funk masters cringe and um those fans would be so happy if he loses they'll be they'll be so happy they'll be like oh this is great he lost we got henry cejudo triple c is back in charge so if you're if you're floating my narrative, if you believe my narrative here, I think there's a lot of reason there for why that would be a good look. Now, Sterling is younger and should be fresher, very athletic. He's home, close to home turf. But the minute this fight got announced, I thought to myself, here we go. Here we go. We're going to the scorecards. By split decision. And new. <laughs> yeah. Henry Cejudo. You see Sterling's face like, oh, I dropped my belt. It's going to happen, boys and girls. The betting spots like the most here are going to be the over one and a half rounds. 
at minus 600. The fight starts around three at minus 400. And the split props. The split props are currently sitting at plus 1,000 for Sterling and plus 900 for Cejudo. That's our breakdown of the main event. All right. All right, boys and girls, end of the video, let me give you a summary of our picks to win. Also give you guys a few reminders about some promos and things coming up if you haven't heard already, but I'll get to that in a second. Our summary of our picks to win. This will be our swift picks portion of the video for UFC 288. Prelim card first. Munoz by round three submission. Holmes by round two submission. Rafael Estevan by decision. Alex Setoff by round two submission. Parker Porter by round two ground and pound. Vina Janova by split decision. Chaos Wims by decision, Devin Clark by round two knockout, Drew Dober by round one knockout, Cron Gracie by round two submission. For the Mazmar Evilev versus Diego Lopez fight, we have no pick, it was a late replacement. Jan by split decision over Andrade, Burns by split decision over Muhammad, and Henry Cejudo by split decision over his opponent, Mr. Sterling, to be the new champion. Those are your swift picks for UFC 288. All right, guys, some reminders before I let you guys go. Our Google Drive link is down below. That gives you access to our Excel sheet, our tip sheet, fighter notes, the whole nine. It's the second link down below, I believe, in this YouTube video. The first link is for our newsletter. If you're not subscribed already, please do so. There's a free version of being subscribed. There's a paid version. The paid version is $5 a month. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can subscribe, support our channel. Also have full access to our newsletter, which gives you tip sheet, resource links, links to interviews, a full write-up of the entire card. The free members don't get all of that. They do get the, free, the the prelim card and some other basic information from our newsletter, but the free version, it's still free. Sign up, subscribe. The link's down below. We appreciate your support. On that note, guys, I wish you guys the best of luck. If you're watching with some friends or some family, drinking a cold beer, whatever you're doing, um, enjoy the fights. It's going to be a mega event, and we'll see what happens. Hopefully, this breakdown gives you guys some clues about... Uh, some of the fighters, some insight, and maybe you don't agree with our breakdowns and our picks, but at least you guys have some information with the fighters, right? All right, guys, we'll see you guys soon. Deuces.